Welcome to another episode of Crash Course Podcast. I, of course, am Stormageddon. I'm still John. And I am still Steve. Well, some of us adapt with the times. Others just Have wallow reached, in mediocrity. Actually, I think believe we've already reached perfection and don't need to adapt to said times. Yes, I believe that's correct, John. Mm. <laughs> I'm comfortable with my name and yours, John. I don't know why. Yet, yet at the same time, Steve, we might be evolutionary dead ends. There, there is fun. that. There is a possibility of that. There, yeah. Especially Steve. Darwinism. Never <laughs> tell the enemy your Achilles heel. <laughs> right? That's not a good... Never. It, it didn't work for Achilles. It doesn't work for anybody else. Well, that was just an accidental <laughs> slip. That was pillow talk. I mean, really, at the end of the day, that's all it was. It was an accidental slip. And he, how was he supposed to know that his slave would go and tell somebody else that's kind of important? Wow, I, mean, I do not know all of that story. <laughs> I just realized now. What was the, Troy was the movie that had... That was in recent years that had a lot of that stuff, though. Most oh, of the that movie was. was I, actually, yeah, I'm going to go back a couple thousand years before <laughs> then and actually and, and talk about the Iliad in which modern audience. I don't care. They should read that book. I will comment. That was an ambitious movie. It was an ambitious, like, all that they tried to throw in it. But it still came across like just about every other modern superhero film. So why would you, you know, try to employ actual mythology? It just, it felt too ambitious for that particular format. You know what was actually uh, in the similar vein but significantly better? Kingdom of Heaven. Like, that one was just a solid, Supposedly, that's a very good movie. I did not see that. You haven't seen that? I haven't seen Kingdom of Heaven. The director's cut, which has like an hour, actually makes the movie better. It was one of the few director's cut that was just really, really just uh, an increase in quality. Anyway, we are in an fact doing a, we're still doing a podcast though, right? Yeah, yes. we, we are. So, About music, not movies, right? Right. So, or odes. For now. For now, anyway. Who knows? Until that's what the future will tell us. Yes. Um, so before we get into this week's album, I just want to promote a little thing that I am doing that um, Steve is actually going to join me for, well, show up to at least, I hope. Um, on May 2nd at the Waystation, I am hosting. Uh, this is the first event where I'm actually hosting hosting a thing, um, not counting the X-Files uh, um, screening I did, which also I hosted, but there was more video, less talking. And you weren't the one, only one in charge. Correct. Um, so um, Joseph Bertolozzi, a previous guest of my other podcast, the uh, Crash Chords Autographs. I almost and, said the Crash Chords Autographs show. And someone I've touted, by the way, for like three years yes. since episode two. <laughs> Pretty much. Um, so he uh, is was a guest on my podcast, and he has the album that I interviewed him about, Tower Music, coming out. Uh, the end of April, and so on May 2nd at the Way Station, we're doing an album release where um, we will be sampling the album. Um, he'll talk a little bit about the process and the album, and then I will interview him live. He'll take questions from the audience, and uh, it's super exciting. And so he had come to me to, to host it, which I really appreciate. Um, he apparently had a great time on my podcast, which is good to know. That kind of feedback is always very precious. And so please, if you are in the New York area or feel like coming to the New York area, Please come to the Waystation on May 2nd at, I believe, 8 p.m. 
to see to the Tower Music album release party. I would also encourage anyone who's interested to do their research before they show up and ask those questions because he does explain a lot of that actually on the album itself with a little postscript on the whole entire project yeah. and how he went to the Eiffel Tower and how he achieved certain sounds that he achieved on that album uh, which are all made from sounds using just the Eiffel Tower. So yeah, listen to that little spiel of his and then have have questions based on it. I feel like that's something that the composer himself would be really intrigued to hear. Uh, while that album is not available yet, I believe excerpts from that explanation are available on YouTube as well as select tracks. So definitely go check that out. And check out his previous work, Bridge Music, which is available, which he did on the, uh, which bridge near New Paltz was it? Uh, that was the Mid-Hudson Bridge. Mid-Hudson Bridge. Yeah. And there's actually an installation where you can hear samplings of his performance or his creation at the bridge. So, um, yeah, definitely come out to that. It should be an awesomely educational music party, which I'm really excited about. Absolutely. Um, and booze. And booze, yes. Well, yeah, well, the not bar. Yeah, 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 the way station. You know, that bar that we never mention on the show. It allows people to, you know, stay intellectually curious and, you know, stupefy themselves at the same time. Exactly. Dumbify. Because <laughs> stupefy means something different. That's also And true. it's a very common stupid people mistake. <laughs> That you just made. That I just made. Just, okay. uh, let's, <laughs> why, don't we, why don't we ride our segue <laughs> right, right on to what we're doing this week. Um, so we've made a educated decision to um, start bumping these episodes with the uh, email that inspires it. Whenever we get a request from a listener, we are going to read it at the top of the show of when we do the listener request. It just seems to make more sense. We love doing our fan mail at the end. Then, that's doing, what, it, then doing it when we actually receive the email, which right. in this case was about a month ago. Right. So um, let's get it out of the air. Jose, uh, hi, how's it going? Nice to hear from you again. And we did absolutely receive your email. We did read it at the end of an episode back in that era, like in March. Yeah. I think it was maybe episode one. 183, 184, somewhere yeah. in that vein. We're just going to read it again, and it's going to make this whole first paragraph completely irrelevant. Hey, Crash Crew, might there be a rule against requesting album reviews for material that has yet to be released to the public? <coughs> I ask because I'd like to request a pair of things for potential dissection that actually release on the same day, April 1st. <coughs> However, I'm afraid that isn't a preemptive attempt to poke fun ahead of the day you're actually expected to poke fun. Sorry. Uh, the two albums I have in mind are The Last Shadow Puppets, Everything You've Come to Expect, and The Heavies, Hurt and the Merciless. They're two of my favorite bands, but my head was splitting over which to request for an album review, so I'm submitting them both. I hope it's not too much trouble. I'd prefer the Puppets release <coughs> for review over the heavies, but that's not my decision to make, if at all. How humble of you, Jose. Thanks again for all the work you guys pour in the podcast. Much love, Jose. Um, yeah, so uh, if you've read the title, you know it's one we're doing. Uh, but we're we... doing the heavy! Yeah. Oh. Uh, no, oh, I listened to the wrong album I, this oh, week. Oh, crap. That could be a problem. <laughs> My notes. <laughs> no, we're doing The Last Shadow Puppets. Yes, it was something that we, as a group, were just not completely familiar with. Uh, me and Storm both had prior knowledge of the heavy uh, here and there, mostly from a video game. But in the long haul, we both kind of delved into their music. And The Last Shadow Puppets was just something that was kind of out of left field for us. Well, also, and I'm also, always... Jose preferred it. Right. Yeah. Well, that, I, that, too, that, helps. that helped, yeah. I'm also eager to dive into anything that Alex Turner touches because I love Arctic Monkeys, especially their album AM, and I enjoyed um, The Great Pretenders as well, which was also touched by Alex Turner as well. Yeah. So I thought that this would be a good album to do. Also, if a listener says, I prefer this, 
We're going to do that. That's kind of, yeah, a little bit. Well, hint. unless what he prefers is far inferior, as far as discussion goes, than the other option. Well, maybe. I mean, or he's playing really weird mind games on us, like reverse psychology and email. That That's that's above us. I'm sorry, yeah. Jose. You're, you're, you're speaking above us. Um, but yeah, we will get to the hurt and the merciless. Uh, just... Just not right away. We yeah. like to space out these things. So uh, we'll come back to your other requests as well. It will not fall to the wayside because we did this one. But thank you for um, suggesting stuff. As always, you know, there are at least three listeners I can mention by name who I know listen. Um, but I won't. I just will at this point specifically thank Jose for submitting this as we get into what we're doing this week. Um, as I mentioned earlier, I'm super excited because it's, I guess, a side project of Alex Turner. It is. Uh, it's part of like a super group. It's, it's another one of the super groups. So might as well go into the other uh, uh, avid listener of ours, uh, the mysterious Mark H. Yes. Um, and actually, we will get a, a chance to say the third, like, avid listener as well, because this has a really strange connection. Um, it, it's a super group, and I mention that only because mysterious Mark H. Recently, in episode 181, uh, recommended FFS by FFS, which was the first super group, I think, that we've ever done, uh, with a fusion of Freds Ferdinand and uh, Sparks. And uh, it was interesting. It was just a project that they created because they, they like each other, they like each other's company, and they musicians and they like to collaborate. Well, this is a similar kind of deal, and in this particular case, it's made up of Alex Turner of Arctic Monkeys, uh, at least that's what people predominantly know him of, and Miles Kane of The Rascals, and he's also a solo artist, uh, producer and drummer James Ford of Simeon Mobile Disco, and Zach Dawes of Mini Mansions as a session musician. Um, Mini Mansions, of course, we did back in episode 158. That was Jose's last request. Uh, that was also, it, it featured Alex Turner, I think, briefly within it. So he a lot had of vocals on the track, I believe. a lot of crossover here. But that's not the one that I was necessarily alluding to, because guess who does the string arrangements on this album? Owen Paulette. Owen Paulette. Oh, Palette, right? Yes, Palette. Yeah. I keep forgetting that that's Who how it's was suggested to us by our third avid listener. You Heather. guessed it, Heather S. Yeah, All so, right. th wow, that's actually, this is like the pinnacle of connected material. That's yeah. kind of crazy. Do you all know each other? Are you just messing with us? Right, I it's feel crazy. like they're all in the same town and they're just messing with us. <laughs> I think that's I true. Feel, I, but I feel like we have a tell. Like, there's 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 way too many musicians showing up in our work now. Too, too many people were we're going back to over and over again. I feel like I feel like we're stuck in a loop, but then we did Baby Metal, so it kind of broke us out true, of that. True, that too. Like, yes, we have other listeners. We yeah. don't always <laughs> engage in, in such uh, wonderful email exchanges. And, and of course, we've had other uh, uh, listener requests like from Jessica and from Kristen as well, but it's just funny that this reflects the most vocal of our listeners, for yeah. sure. And, and we'll be going back to you guys, absolutely. So, um... Yeah, this is an interesting project. Uh, apparently they were on hiatus for a while, this little supergroup. They first formed in about 07, 08, and they had an album called The Age of Understatement. Um, so there's really not a lot of material except that and singles to come out of them, because then they went on hiatus as supergroups inevitably do, because they go back to all of their other projects right. before they remerge again. And that happened most recently, just this last year, for this album. And in fact, Owen Pallett also did the, the string arrangements on that first album as well. And then they asked him, hey, you want to do it in this project too? And he came right back and fulfilled that. So um, I knew I liked those strings. Yeah, right? <laughs> and I thought I knew why, and now I know why. Um, why don't we just kick it off with their album, Everything You've Come to Expect, track one, Aviation. And most of these say they're, they're mutually written by Alex Turner and Miles Kane. And uh, you can hear Alex Turner's voice right away on all these tracks. Mm -hmm. And of course, it takes me back to Arctic Monkeys. Um, and yes, even for that, that, I think, that one or two tracks in, in uh, Mini Mansion's Great Pretenders. So, 
yeah, you're getting you're getting something in that vein. And if you like those artists, this is probably going to be an album for you. Uh, let's see what we get, and let's just walk through it. Aviation. So Aviation starts, I think we were all in agreement with what was exactly like the THX kind of like intro in the beginning of movies. Like the yeah, or even, not using, you know, yeah. really abstract synthy sounds right. or whatever they use to make that really dense sound yeah. in those opening sequences, but using mainly just the strings. So obviously this is Owen Paulette's handiwork. And then right after that, we get Alex Turner's vocals, which like I love his vocals. I could probably listen to him sing the alphabet and be intrigued because I enjoy his he vocals. He does have vocals you can kind of just like, they rack you up to, in a yeah. kind of blanket in a way because it's, it, he doesn't really belt it. He, yeah. he has a way of singing really almost at speaking volume, but it always is very deeply melodic and flows from one phrase to the next. Which is why I like the echo that they throw on top of what he's saying. The, the, the reverb that is really background, uh, hitting your ears half a second, not even half a second, a fraction of a second afterwards is a nice little effect going on right there. It adds a little bit of extra impact that you would normally expect from a belting kind of a track. And it's something he also uses a lot. Like yeah. I can detect that in a lot of Arctic Monkeys work. It's something um, I don't normally like except when it matches the voice. And in this case, it works well with his voice. Yeah. Uh, as for the background stuff here, it's just a pretty basic G minor guitar riff thing going on here. Starts off in G, moves uh, up to A minor, a little bit, then up to C minor, and then back to G again. So it's a little bit hazy at first because these kind of slow moving chord progressions. Um, the bass in the background, that's kind of neat. I know that's kind of a reserved term, but it's not really like highlighted here, so I feel like I need to like mention it, but not necessarily promote it. It's not the point. Well, this bass stays very strong and very tightly knit with the percussion, and it does a great job of of flushing out what the drums are doing, of, of really just bringing it a, into the forefront because the drums themselves, they're boppy, they're flowing back and forth, but they're not really hitting very hard. They're not very forefront kind of a piece. So the bass is a nice little transitional piece from the rhythm guitar and the drums, bringing them together very well so that it feels flush, it feels full without actually having to do too much layering without well, having to add too much stuff on top of it. Well, actually, since we're on this point, I mean, this is in stark contrast to last week. I'm just recalling how we started off the first track of, of Baby Metal's Metal Resistance, and, and we thought that the vocals, in some sense, really, or at least I mentioned that the vocals didn't seem to really be the point next to the in extremely elaborate, you know, uh, backing band that was going right. on there. This is the exact inverse. Obviously, the vocals are the point here, and everything else is kind of in the background. Even, in fact, those strings. The strings are kind of a subtle element, but they probably are still my favorite feature. But they're subtle because they keep sliding in and around in a kind of uneven fashion in the background, still keeping with the idea of that very first THX sequence, as we're calling it. Um, it, it continues doing that later on in just little ways here and there. It's the kind of thing you almost find like in movie trailers when things start getting a little bit more intense mm -hmm. and they do these like these flashing sequences this isn't like action movies sci-fi movies thriller movies and the glissandos in the background just start overlapping against this booming rapid you know scene flashes to try to emphasize the point it's it's that kind of thing uh with like little tremolos and it mainly shows up here in transitions either between uh verses and choruses or even between phrases here and there but it's always kind of present well, what I like about it kind of being here and there within the song is it adds to an ambiance that the whole song kind of perpetuates of this kind of flow that I think would feel 
the song itself would feel more repetitive without. I think it adds an air to the track that kind of gives it a fluidity. That's why it's my favorite part. Yeah. Especially after that first chorus, when we go into verse two, the strings become much more flush. They become much fuller, and they become the lead guitar. And this is kind of a theme of, of the album as a whole, and I like this preview right here, that the strings really are a major focal point of the instrumentation of what this album's going to be doing. And in this case, while and yet I'm it not... Didn't, it, yet it didn't make it dense, though, because yes, they cut because out the rhythm guitar at that same exact moment. I like that this is going on. I like that we're actually getting a little bit different instrumentation, because otherwise, this song doesn't really do much. This song really doesn't change too much until we get to the end. It, there's no major shift going on with the rhythm. There's no major shift going on with the rhythm guitar, with any of the other instruments of what's going. It, it's which it's is why we which there. is why we kind of glossed over the chorus because the chorus, you know, it's still basically in in G minor. It only feels subtly different to my ears. Mm-hmm. It's the same riff pattern, uh, it, and it, it's neat. And it's also a fairly short chorus. It doesn't last for very long before we uh, bounce back to to the verse. Which obviously there you have the more elaborate string section, and that's really where 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 my brain is at with this piece. It doesn't even really develop until the bridge later on. I think maybe the second chorus may have pushed the string arrangements even further than it did the first chorus, but the bridge is really where it takes off, like sectionally within this piece. It pushes the chords finally into some foreign territory. It's almost like a prolonged excursion uh, before it finally comes back home, and I really appreciated that. A lot of bridges, you know, they just barely step away and they step right back. This was more advanced. Yeah, my favorite part of that bridge was the the percussion, the the drums, we're having a completely different lead-in on on each of the major phrases. The, it changed, and this big change, this big kind of hiccup. It was it was a little extra of a stutter here there. That was enough to actually get me engaged on this track for the first time outside the vocals, and that was that was a little disappointing because the instrumentation was dynamic enough to really pull me in, but it wasn't enough like texturally to get me there until the bridge. And the bridge was kind of late in the track itself. Yeah. Like this, this just made this a very good introductory track. Well, bridges track. are usually late in the track, but well, this you know. was this was really late. This was right near the end of the track it was, itself. It was and right at the tail end. Because of that, I, I felt like this was more of a preview of instrumentation as opposed to a really strong hook for the album as a whole. I mean, it does feel like an introduction to the album. And I think that also Steve's very much right that without the string flourishes and the even swelling of the strings later the song would be fairly steady you know it's the strings and Alex Turner's vocals that really kind of make the track pop on top of what's pretty much an indie rock track yeah my only problem is that the 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 song does repeat itself in yeah. terms of those those uh, underlying instruments. I know you're expected that they should repeat, but I felt like this was just a little bit too much in in contrast with the strings themselves, because the strings are obviously the most elaborate portion, and you don't want to feel like you know Owen Pallet, who is clearly a, he's 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 the guy for hire here. You don't want to feel like he's carrying this. Yeah. Um. But I felt like that that's where I was at least in the beginning. Well, until the full outro. The full outro, and I use the word full with a a capitalization right there, it wasn't doing anything wow, it wasn't doing anything amazing, but it felt like a true culmination of of the ideas that were present in the percussion, in the rhythm guitar, in the bass, that it did leave me on a very a, a tasteful note at the end of the track. But with what we get in the next track, track two, Miracle Aligner, it was a little bit it was a little bit odd because what we got in track one was like Matt said a very indie focused track and what we get right away in track two felt older 
felt more Motown because we're getting a much different percussion line here. It's slower. It's definitely a lot more leading into the phrase work of these verses. Even if it's not so slow, it's relaxed at least. It's relaxed. It's relaxed pace in terms of rock, and there's definitely something very 60s, very 70s about it. It is kind of Motown, and it's also so smooth. It's smooth, at least in the way that Motown is, even if it's not flat-out Motown. Um, and I love the voice here, because it, it, it also has that smooth quality to it. And the way I said before about how it kind of wraps you up in a, in a nice warm blanket, well, in this case, it's that plus maybe the nostalgia of it sounding like it's just a little bit old-timey. And this combines to have a, a, a really weird effect on me. I mean, I, normally I can be a little bit negative when it comes to things that are obviously pastiche where you're just, you know, referencing the past. But in this case, it was owned just a little bit too well. Um, and also the fact that it begins with the chorus and that it lasts a while, it just, it seemed confident. Yeah, I think for me the thing that really led me into the song was, whereas in the previous track Alex Turner's singing was kind of what you expect from him if you're a fan. Actually, yeah. Th this one was a lot more tender. It was closer to the mic. It felt like it gave this feeling like he's singing to you. It felt a lot more intimate, which kind of really pulled me in also. That mixed with the old-timey feel felt like an old crooner singing to you. Yes, just you and specifically, I, and and I and I like that. It it worked. It was you know I kind of felt a swell like I was like, ah. like well, it just kind of got engaged. This track starts off with "Tell him what you want, and baby, he can find you anything you need. Tell him what you're needing. Hey, ooh. come along, <laughs> miracle aligner. I'm sorry, it's hard to to do emotes hey, like ooh. that in in. Hey, ooh. <laughs> hey, ooh. Come on, Miracle Aligner. Go and get him, Tiger. Get down on your knees. Get down on your knees again. Just the way he's actually directly talking to a person. It's, yeah. It's, it's, Feels very straightforward and it's direct. It's you. You, yeah. you, you. Instead of I, me, ours, mine, or any sort of idea like that. It's a direct conversation. Uh, on another point, I'm considering something weird here. Considering I, I, I just said in the first track, you know, that I, I didn't want to believe that Owen Pallet was carrying the song. And the funny thing is that in this track, I can absolutely tell that Owen Pallet is making real strides to be as tasteful and reserved as possible with the strings. I mean, it's it's so in the background, it, it's barely audible. You can almost lose yourself. It, it, it creates just a slight little bit of uh, ambiance, as, as Matt said. But the funny thing is, at times, it even sounds like a distant choir. When you just have that consistent strings just sort of gliding and also overlapping and that's what you do in an orchestra in order to maintain the illusion that is like an ongoing note that just lasts for you know bars and bars and bars and bars but you obviously can't do because eventually you run out of bow but if you have more than one string then when you you can just mimic it because then no one actually hears your bow going down while someone else is going up and your bow starts going up while their bow starts going down and it just the note can last forever and that's the effect here and it can almost sound like that of a human voice which is why strings were invented in the first place to give that illusion so that's what I heard at times, and it kind of freaked me out and maybe brought me into this in a, in a more metaphysical way. It actually promotes the smoothness we're talking about on this track because that it's not really phasing in and out, but it feels like that's what's going on. The volume control is not changing. The Nothing's really leaving and, and, and coming back in or anything like no, that. And I, first I, part, I, well, not the it, first, not the earliest part, no. Yeah, but it, it does a great effect of, of slithering around what's going on around it. 
It's it's oozing in and out of the crevices that's being left behind by the rest of the instrumentation. There is a guitar solo pretty early on, but I'd argue that that guitar solo is doing exactly what you just said. Even that, you, like, you barely register that it has kind of cut out, you know, cue guitar solo. It It's... The, the guitar is just kind of going along with it. It's very slow. It's very tied with the melody. Um, it's not, you know, really stepping off to do its own thing. It's just everything's just going along with each other. And then around 2 minutes, 16 seconds, we finally do strip it down. But this is... We get the sort of, like, attack echoey guitar, which I've actually come to associate a little bit with the Arctic Monkeys. I think they've done it before, but I think we've also heard in a lot of, like, late 60s rock. Mm -hmm. That kind of thing you would hear it in mixing. You'd hear it in various studio projects of the era because it's almost like a kind of slap bass, but with the guitar in this particular case, at least you get that form of a really high attack that then has this distant echo in the background. I really, really liked the the effect, um, but I do have some little issue with the melodies here. They're not mind-blowing, and you know I like good melody writing. Melodies, I think, are like probably the foremost element of any track that, that needs so badly to be memorable, almost in every, in every single instance. And I really like it when artist melodies kind of go through hoops of fire in a way to still be as memorable as possible. You know, really long melodies, that's, that's what I prefer. In this particular case, he's not really quite doing that, but the melodies are, and I will give it this, they're so tied to that pace of the song, everything we're talking about, it just being so tightly, you know, knit, that they barely exist in a way. And that doesn't mean that I don't like them. What it has going for it is that as he sings, the bass has a little bit of an undercurrent that plays along with these very, you know, slow kind of plain melodies, specifically in the chorus, along with another voice that's just a little bit softer and the bass kind of hugs the right ear. It makes me feel like I'm just bobbing in the water. It's so pleasurable to listen to, and it can really, it can really make the mood, despite the fact that I don't think the melodies are, like, top-notch tier of writing. I think that the... the whole picture of how timeless this kind of song feels I think also adds to the engagement it's hard to not connect to it because it feels so not ubiquitous but like it could exist anywhere and so you could connect with it anywhere it's you know it, it makes you kind of get sucked in because you can relate no matter who you are where you are how old you are I don't are. want to completely place that out of time though I feel like in a way he's managed to make this timeless uh, just by being that's, well, by using this 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 uh, style that is clearly a little bit old-fashioned, yeah. but he's owning it better than we see in most instances. That's true. And it's really telling how well he owns this idea that when the twangy guitar that's got a kind of a Western feel to it comes in, and when you identify this guitar, and I heard it right away, it is twangy. It is very hard attack for what's going on with this track, but it's so smoothly adapted into the rest of the track. It's so intricately plays around with what the melody is already doing and and working in this in this outro that it just feels natural it feels like a, a, a just a greater extension to what's going on that this this culmination of the track this is so powerful for the track that was kind of background that was kind of passe at the end of the day I, I was just enjoying it. And this is the first re real hook on this album that I'm getting into musically. The first time that 
Yeah, and the flourishes of the strings have been solid. The the this what what Owen's been doing has been great, but this is the first time that the band itself is really gripping for me. Well, this is kind of bizarre because in many ways I almost feel like we're meandering about this around this track as if we're sort of searching for things to like about it, and we keep using these generalized terms like, well, it's it's smooth, it flows, and it feels natural, it feels earnest from the heart, and you know the, the, these sometimes can always be like little go-to words for us, but in in this particular case, we gravitate toward them because I think we're circling the inevitable here, and that's yeah. always a challenge, and sometimes that's that's actually why we do this, is to try to explain the inevitable, and I think we kind of seem to be caught up in it. We all clearly seem to have liked this track, but I don't think we can highlight things about it that are, you know, changing music as we know it. We all just know that this is maybe as much as I... I, I don't really focus on this too much within uh, within our podcast, but this may be my ideal kind of background music. And I mean that really positively. Until we get to the next track, Dracula Teeth. And if the previous track was smooth, this one is just Teflon. <laughs> well, this well, this one, first of all, screams 70s. Yeah. So this is smooth in a whole different kind of way. And I, I think... Honestly, I, I, I think both uh, both Jose and the Mysterious Mark H, I think they're messing with me at this point because they know I like funk, and so they're just picking these over-the-top, really super funk tracks just to skew my rating. Well, <laughs> the jig is up, Jose. I'm on to you. <laughs> it's the string flourishes again, and here they're not subtle. Here they're yeah. not subtle at all. This is These are the elaborate kind of intro sequences common to anything written by uh, the composer Gene Page from the 1970s who did amazing things in this exact field. Things that really weren't that mainstream for the time, but they've been been endlessly uh, dipped into within the last 30 years. And I'm glad for it, and I'm always happy when a track like this really pops up. And then once again, there's other little elements that, that harken back to the time. There's that direct input bass that I'm always talking about, specifically uh, what they used to do in the 70s is, you know, uh, just forget about miking it, just just do the direct input and then immediately send that out right into the final cut, into the final, the final mix. Don't mic it at all. From the 80s on, it seemed like it was the exact opposite. And it's like, well, no, we don't want that. We like the ruggedness that comes from a mic just smashed up against the front of the amplifier. But here, it's so clean. And I think that's why I do prefer uh, bass tracks from the 1970s uh, best, at least to my ears, because of the mixing quality, even if they're not the best written bass lines. And in this particular case, I'm going to say, the bass part itself is not spectacularly written again, kind of just like what I said about the melodies before. Um, But they're so satisfying because of the mixing. It's just a really well-produced track. I also like that in the beginning of this song, the drums are doing more interesting things than they had done in the previous two tracks combined. There's this kind of stutter to the rhythm that kind of really kind of moves the track forward. It's not, you know, huge drum solos and extravagant changes, but it definitely has an interesting flow to it that again adds that Teflon feel. That mixed with the bass that Steve is talking about gives this kind of layer, this film to the track that you can't help but dig your fingers into a bit. Yeah, we're not stuck in the same place with this track in a lot of ways and one of my favorite places that things do change up is the vocals. Here a lot of the end of the phrases are really interesting because the inflection changes. He's not changing pitch, but he is changing just inflection. It's it's subtle shifts here and there during just the regular verse work that he's doing, but he does eventually do something a little bit magical with the pitch. 
Yeah, there's a transition. He employs these little, like, vocal slides from the tritone right up to the five. It comes across as really, really eerie. And then following those segments, the strings just develop and develop and develop. The, the whole entire track, once again, we're going to use that buzzword, just has a nice flow to it. But like I said in the beginning, in a totally different way. The kind of way in which you can only just... Uh, the way people used to say, oh, you can groove along to this funk track, when funk started to become the genre of choice. It, it's, it's called groove for a reason. You're just lockstep with it every single step of the way. Little keyboard flourishes as well. Not as, as much of a keyboard presence here, but I did detect them here and there, and I liked when they were present. I, I kind of would have liked to see more keyboard uh, in this particular track, but maybe that's just because I, I have a propensity for uh, to enjoy that traditional funk ensemble. All said, the track itself does live up to the last line, Pinball Machines on Mute. It's the idea of, yeah, you have nice, easy flow of the ball going around your, your, your stage, your game itself, but you don't quite know the angles it's going to take, but everything feels natural. I like being surprised as we're going along with this track, whether it's through the vocals or when flourishes are coming in or everything like that. But the everything just, at the end of the day, this natural feel is is so hard to replicate keeping it so random. It, it's, it's so nice. Well, also what I like is that the track actually seamlessly flows from verse to chorus and vice versa. But are point, still identifiable. That's the key thing that but, I... But at, while they're identifiable, you can't actually identify the transition. I mean, you could. Of course, you could pinpoint it. But as just casually listening to it, it just flows so smoothly. I think I like the lack of transition, noticeable transition, as a favorite transition for me, at least at this point in the year. I think that the song, <laughs> because it moves so smoothly, that's the kind of transition I want where you don't recognize it. Steve brought up earlier when we were listening, like the stark transitions in the Iggy, Iggy Pop album we did like in, in our favorite track on that record, like the transition was so beautiful because it was the stark string transition that was just so sudden yeah, but so great. the tail end to a string ensemble that hadn't existed anywhere else in the album. <laughs> and so like while that was beautiful, that was beautiful in the moment. This constant transitioning throughout the track makes the whole track beautiful. And I think that's what I really like about it. Especially yeah. the ending, the very big string ending that comes in. <laughs> another time where string ending. It's, the track culminates at the end I guess kind of how it should. Yeah. I don't know. There I mean, aren't really many like fade-outs on this record so far. It's a lot of like big moment track ends. And the but way it's this, okay. It's, it's another one where like the ending is the best part of the track for me. But in this case, I feel like I got a really great track and then the ending I needed for it. Yeah. What, the way everything comes together and just... It, it leaves me the most fulfilled thus far. I feel like this was just a great natural way to end the track and to for once not really leave me wanting more i mean you know the funny thing is this this whole atmosphere was used in so many films like around the late 70s mid 70s to late 70s and i i'm so drawn in usually to those films regardless of whatever the topic is whatever right. the theme is just because of the music itself i was watching um the taking of Pelham 123 the other day. It's a wonderful, Which wonderful has come Pelham. up on this podcast many times. Well, I like trains. Well, so yes. For that reason, get, getting to see like the gritty 1970s uh, New York City subway system, obviously I, I like that movie, but there's also this really killer uh, like uh, funk intro that just kind of revs up the, the 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 high intensity pace of everything going on. Everything's under the wire. You got to get you got to get the money to the bad guys in time. You know, so there's all these crazy chase scenes and and the music just seems to tie it together in a way. I, I imagine 
imagine it's probably not something that a lot of people would really identify as being a great element of that movie aside from the movie and the great cast, but the music really, I think, held it together. So the reason I mention that is because in this particular case, you're looking at, you know, a track that is using the same exact atmosphere, and I feel like in many ways the atmosphere, to me, kind of is the last word. And you don't really, like, the, the details, obviously the devil's in the details, but I feel like this particular ensemble, the ensemble that was chosen, kind of is a rating skewer for me, just because <laughs> it, it feels so, everything blends, and it shows you, you've got a little bit of a, a, a funk streaking in your body. That's just, it's the mark of a good musician to me, personally. Uh, but last thing about this track, uh, the lyrics here. This is kind of funny because I, it almost is a little bit displaced when you consider the whole thing is about Dracula teeth, and there's a lot of creepy imagery. Um, I don't know. Funk is not inherently a creepy thing to me, but I do know that there was something musically that Alex Turner did achieve, which was absolutely creepy, and it was the entire album of AM, front yeah. to back. And I don't know why. That wasn't really, like, funk necessarily, maybe here and there, but it was, I thought, really its own thing in kind of a more modern indie rock of style that I think Alex Turner had relatively invented. And I feel like... That's not present here, but the lyrics are sending me absolutely back to that album and the whole creepy vibe that it had. Uh, I wake up in an ice-cold sweat and my skin starts to creep. You're hovering above my bed, looking down on me. Haunted house sound effects, Dracula teeth. Lover boy's last resort, secretly calls the getaway car. Lucky stars rattle the jaw as the drawing bow. And then back to the chorus, I wake up in an ice-cold sweat and my skin starts to creep. It's just, uh, later on, lipstick on my pillow, via my cheek, the full moon's glowing yellow and the floorboards creak. Say, harifik! <laughs> I mean, it's, it's just something about it that I feel like this is his personality creeping through the lyrics, and I feel like there is a little bit of a disparity between this and the music. Like, there was something here that could have been achieved perhaps more by a different type of instrumentation, but I still like the instrumentation, so that kind of just leaves me in a middle ground. I have to take them as two separate elements. I mean, I don't know. It's not foreign for Alex Turner and the Arctic Monkeys as a band to do disparate things, lyrics versus instrumentation, but I hear what you're saying. I think that for me personally, I didn't notice the disparity because I kind of got wrapped up in everything that was going on. But if we're talking about disparate things, when you got everything you've come to expect in the next track and then get these lyrics, you're talking about something that is the exact opposite of what it's trying to explain, I guess. I guess. <laughs> so, so this track is, of course, the title track. And it, it, from the minute it starts, I get this strange kind of carnival vibe, but not, say, the same way we did back on Modest Mouse's album and Sugar Boats. But... But there's definitely something that feels festival or festive about it in kind of I didn't the notes. feel that at all. And it's just so bizarre because I just thought it was so obvious. It seemed like it's me anyway. I'll save my piece because John has a point. <laughs> well, I felt right away, speaking of Modest Mouse, The World at Large. One of my favorite tracks from one of my favorite albums of all time. Good news for people who love bad news. Track two. The words right away are gripping and grabbing and almost nonsensical. Tiger eyelashes, summer wine, goosebump soup, and honey pie. Piggy in the middle, I'm the baddie's daddy. About to make my golden move. Apocalyptic lipstick campaign, which, tongue twister, and one of the coolest wordplays I've seen in a long time. Four horsemen in a one-horse race. 
the dance she does to shadow play appeals to an ancient impulse. It's great lyrics, but I gotta say, I, I you, you don't even get them. Which is no, no, no. That's not my point. I, I just, I don't feel the carnivalistic um thing that you guys feel. I feel something totally different. And just for your information, Jose, I'm talking to Jose now. The intro to this song, I probably heard within seconds after you sent your first email. Uh, the initial email that I read in the beginning of, the, of this podcast and that I read at some point previously. I just thought, all right, all right let, me, let me check out these albums. And I, the title track came up first. And that's what I listened to. And at that point, I, I immediately knew, of course, we're doing this. We would do it anyway, but I was suddenly very excited. Um, I'm crazy about this, this opening verse. Absolutely crazy about the intro and the verse itself. I think it has something to do with the bass moving in such wide intervals. It's first move from like a low G up, reaching up a ninth to an A, then just down a fifth to the D, back up to the A, F, E flat, kind of inch, getting shorter intervals as you go, up to C sharp, then really just inching down to a C before doing that all over again. There's something about that undercurrent, which played alone doesn't feel very impactful, but played with the vocals and traveling at this slow, soothing, but obviously very ominous pace. I thought that this was this was a harrowing introduction, but it had me just completely immersed in it. I was like I was like one with the song at this point as as, as cliched as that sounds, but that like to hear even you guys mention like the word carnival, you know, it doesn't that's that's so diametrically opposed to what I experienced here. I will say that maybe in some strange sense I was kind of thrown back to Modest Mouse like John was, but more in the way I felt during the chorus of uh, Strangers uh, to Ourselves, um, I believe it was track seven, Groundwalks uh, with Time in a Box. And during the chorus of that, you have kind of the, the, the choir steps in, and it's like this overall very, I admit, I'm addicted, funk atmosphere, suddenly breaks down to this very slow, just, it almost seems to uh, belie the setup of the song itself, but here at least it kicks up right off with that, and I, I loved it for it, to the point that actually, actually the, the chorus sucked out a little bit of the tension, and I think maybe no, the no, opening no, 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 verse no. was my favorite part. Two no. rebuttals. Almost, almost. Two rebuttals. I have more to say, but you go. <laughs> <laughs> One, the harpsichord that's being used in this track was very similar to the pacing of the Earthwalks. And that, that was a, a defining feature of the way that chorus was played out. Mm. But here, the harpsichord's doing it in the verse right away. No, I, I would disagree with the, with the pacing on that because Groundwalks with Time and Box was a much quicker track. Remember, no, it was the chorus, the chorus, the way the percussion was used in the chorus was very similar. And that's where me and Storm are both getting the idea of that demented carnival ride kind of an idea. I mean, I think for me it's mostly that I find all carnivals terrifying and ominous. And clowns, so, man, clowns. Right so there. the ominousness of it, I think, is what led me to kind of feel that way. But I see what you're saying. What I think is more interesting is that... But there's something the, hokey about that, which I don't feel here. Well, So, yes, and I don't... I, I feel like... It was less hooky and more kind of creep for me. But I think what's really interesting is the fact that the three of us channeled three different songs by the same band to describe this song. In, in some yeah. way, except I disagree. I'm glad we're finally finding a track that we're completely on opposite sides with. Because I don't agree, I still don't agree, even after John's point, that the pacing was at all similar to the chorus. It was really more like just the feeling. And I think it has more to do with the chords than anything. The mm -hmm. chords in the chorus of Groundwalk's Time in a Box and the verse here. 
But I want to go back to another point you made, and that was the chorus kind of killed it for you. The first half of the chorus, the lead-in of it. It sucked the tension it, out by it, it being a little hokey. more positive. Yeah, it did get a little hokey no, in that case. In, in my ears, it did, because it made it a little bit too bright and happy. But uh, Okay, happens, if you associate bright and happy with hokey, then sure. Well, in this case, yes, I would, because I've already got that carnival idea going on. But... What happens about midway through, and you start getting these hiccups, and you start getting that really like stutter step in the in well, the, that, in the that line. Was, that was that's something just completely different, and it was an incredibly nice little just just almost an aside, almost the instruments taking a step back and going, oh, "Wait, we're gonna do a different idea," but they they can't quite get there. It's it's a bump in the ride that that I'm on on this track. It's not even a, a, a whole separate idea. I would describe it as a little bit of a, a ball change in the rhythm. It, it's kind of like a thing in, in dance where you take a step back before just like realigning forward again. Um, and it's always supposed to be just like a little brief thing. It doesn't like start off a whole other set of dance moves or anything. It doesn't become abstract. It's just a little hiccup. And in this case, it's pretty easily explained just by the rhythm itself. Just this like one, two, three, uh, and one. Too, just that little like uh, bat and then forward again, um, but it's purely locked within the rhythm still, um, and I liked that. And it, just to clarify, when I said before the chorus stuck the tension out, you're right. When you said the first part of the chorus, really more the pre-chorus, that was responsible for sucking out the tension. But what I'm talking about here is the chorus, and the chorus I think put me back in a relaxed position, which you might say is still continuing within the vein of. Since it already sucked out the tension, well, all right, I'm here now. And it was still very, very well done. I really am, am hesitant to criticize this in any way because I'm still kind of in that same place that I described, the same, like, emotional atmosphere of the chorus way back in, in Ground Walks with Time in a Box. And the chorus is still doing it for me here. I guess it, what I was really upset with was just that they 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 took away the tension as of the pre-chorus, but I'm still glad at where I landed, and I'm, I'm, I'm glad about more things later on, but I'll get to that. Well, and also I want to clarify that that carnival feel that I did get was mostly in the intro. Once we got into the meat of the song, I didn't feel it as much. I was kind of more in line with what Steve Which was saying. Which is so saying. ironic because it gets more positive as the song develops. Yeah, but I find carnival's not positive, so it's not that ironic. Yeah. Because <laughs> I'm wrong weird. with carnivals? <laughs> They're Clowns. creepy. Clowns. Clowns. But anyway. It's not always what, what I want What I want to talk about, and I'm sure Steve has stuff to say about this too as we, we progress through the track, but like, I think that that lightness of the chorus connects better with the interlude we get later than how the beginning of the track was. Right. I think that's the purpose that that kind of lighter chorus serves, is I, to connect to the meat of the track. But the, what's interesting is that the second... I disagree with that interpretation, <laughs> because the second you go to the interlude, immediately follow the chorus... I gotta be really specific about this, because the second the chorus ends, which is a little more lighthearted, now we yeah. go into the interlude, and the interlude brings goes back to the atmosphere <laughs> of the verse to me. This is suddenly a lot more harrowing again, and all you hear is... This is the only place I'm gonna meet you halfway. You hear a little bit of vocalization, just going, do, 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 on on the upbeat specifically, right. and that kind of does sound like the like a let's say a carousel of sorts. The only place I'm gonna be halfway <laughs> on the car on the, the carnival point. But apart from that, the strings then t come in and they start doing this like rocking back and forth, which is just so beautiful. They just rock up and down, and then where they end, they end on a harmonic, almost the eeriest sound you could possibly pick. And I just, I, I, this was 
most interludes are throwaways. This was like the meat of it, and I'm so glad they went back. And they inevitably they had to do it because they already lightened up the song so much they had to go back to the beginning. I know that they loved where the tension was at, so they were gonna do it, and I should have known. But that's not even the best of this track. I feel like I could probably listen to that opening verse and subsequent verses over and over again. It's just as good in the second uh, the second time around. Plus, it adds a few more things, like this piercing. Comping. It, it feels like the strings were just entering in to do these singular notes that were really, really high, like like someone's getting stabbed far off in the distance. I, I by a clown. Sure, why not? <laughs> Thank you. Uh, it and then there was a modulation later where they finally did, I guess, lighten up the mood somewhat permanently. Yeah. It's it's an enigmatic track, I think, in the end, not because it picks a particularly enigmatic. Uh, position throughout, but right. because it keeps going back and forth between these moments of sheer hope and then moments of like scared in a corner while demons are swirling around you. I have no idea. It's, it's, this is music and I'm not going to try to understand it. We could just, I guess, read a little bit and maybe we'll try to get to the bottom of this. Let's go to the chorus Ghost Riders and the Rat and Parrot. Croc skin collar on a diamond dog. Dirt bag ballet by the bins down the alley. As I walk through the chalet of the shadow of death. Everything that you've come to expect. I guess the coastal air gets a girl to reflect everything that you've come to expect. I just can't get the thought of you and him out of my head. And there it is. Everything that you've come to expect. So well, what's interesting to me is like I like this is a love lore. Well, right, but what I like is that the verses are kind of nonsensical, but then we get some clarity in the chorus. But he's talking about everything you come to expect, but most of the stuff he mentions you don't expect because it's kind of bizarro. And so I think there's this kind of odd irony no, to the track that I really no, like. No, I, I it 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 became very very clear to me in the one line. I just well, yeah, can't get I'm... the thought of you and him out of my head, everything that you've come to expect. This is a track about inevitability, and it's a very, very pessimistic inevitability. But I like how that plays on the verses that don't speak so frankly. I think that dichotomy is interesting to me. I, I, I think in, that adds to the impact of the track. In in some ways, the verses are almost trying to contextualize yeah. this this heartbreak that's going on there in the most inane ways. Like, right. It's just something your mind can't wrap around. And he's he's trying to compare this this loss of love to something that makes the same amount of sense. Yeah, maybe. I, yeah. I, that's, that's what I could gather from all these metaphors, which I honestly am more enamored with just because of the wordplay. Um, the way they roll off the tongue, it's just really good writing. Mm -hmm. And the fact that it is abstract, you know, it leads one to be like, oh, this uh, well, makes no sense. What, is, what does that have to do with anything? <laughs> but it really... But when you consider that every artist is, I think, uh, endowed or, or allowed some ability to just exercise their lyrical art, their their ability to, to mess around with words, and the fact that it's so much not the point and that the music is, I, I, I think it's... I, I, I love these lyrics, and I love the way you almost find yourself singing along with things that don't make sense even immediately to your ears, but, but they ultimately just they, they add to the atmosphere. This track, though, leading us to what follows, it's just there it feels like some kind of disconnect. We'll get well, into that. This is something that we get a lot, that the follow-up track to something that's really impactful like this, when we go to track five, The Element of Surprise, 
it's kind of disappointing that we're going back to a very smooth operator kind of a track. Well, the big problem here, I think, is that contextually this feels... I wrote down flutter pop. I mean, I guess what I mean by that is it just feels kind of fleeting. It, it feels more like a pop rock track that we might have gotten on a different album. Um, here, it just... It feels kind of like an ooh shiny moment following something that was a lot deeper, which I mean, again, part of that could be the effect of the fact of where we're coming from. But but that said, I just feel like the instrumentation here has some sparkly moments and some pops and flares, but nothing like we had been getting It's beforehand. called the element of surprise, and it's really not so surprising, no. I think, given what we've had uh, earlier. I mean, it, it sounds, yeah, like they've added maybe an indie touch to the overall 70s vibe. Yeah. Um, the, little, the little flourishes that are present here, they do less for me this time. Yeah. The lead strings are acting less they, like leads now, and that's something that's a little bit disappointing. They feel more just like effects and less like an integral structure to the instrumentation, and I think that's a big problem. Here's here. a crazy one. I think the melody was a little bit better, but ironically enough, didn't have as much of an impact with me because I didn't yeah. think it was as supported by the background stuff. Also, um, once the instrumentation really kicks in, uh, post-verse, it kind of starts to almost feel cluttered with everything. It doesn't feel... The I agree that the melody's stronger, but I also agree that it feels like it's less engaging because of everything else that's going on. Here's a moment that I really love the melody in. Uh, further down the line here, I thought they were kisses, but apparently not. Do you end all your messages with an X marks the spot? Just let me know when you want your socks knocking off. To, to read along, I mean, I like the lyrics themselves, but it's the melody as he sings them. Yeah. Uh, especially as he transitions right in there into uh, with, with X marks the spot. It was just a really, really beautiful moment. It was very paced. It shows he's a really good melody writer, and he can still write, you know, reserved melodies when he wants to, but usually hoists them up with something else. But in this case, it was the opposite problem. My big issue was the chorus, though. All that pacing, all that nice inflection that's going on there, the choruses feel very cluttered. There's a lot of syllable yeah. work going on in a very short span of time. Really? And the the it, it comes across a lot more deadpan than the rest of what the album's already done. Oh, but I enjoyed the deadpan nature of it. Um, it's just that it's... It just goes along. It just plods along. It, it, it plods along condensed. with the rhythm, and it's very yeah. in line with that, yeah. It's condensed in a lot of ways that the breath I did not know I had in the rest of these tracks gets lost here. I just felt like the track didn't have as much character as the previous tracks it had. Each of them, even the ones that could be considered somewhat steady, had identifying factors. This one didn't as much. It felt like the first time we're getting a little bit more of the same of what we had been getting. There wasn't much of a core to it, and I think yeah. that was my problem with this track. Let's, uh... Alright, let's move on. I guess we're kind of going to gloss over that one a little bit, but I think that's because we all really, really want to get to Bad Habits. So track six... I mean, there's a lot to talk about here, but I think the important thing to start talking about is, I think all three of us's favorite instrument, when it takes kind of the forefront, and that's of course the bass here, because it's very prominent in the introduction of the oh, song. it's just one of my favorite things. <laughs> I, I, I beg to differ. Which this is, is probably, oh, this is a texture-rich track if yeah. I've ever seen one. It, if I've ever heard one, I guess you can't see it. But <laughs> it, it's... It starts out, interestingly enough, still very much in line with the uh, the album. It's got kind of a surfy bass to it. I like that. I like the slap bass sound. I like that quality. 
But then you get these disparate effects, which are actually far more surprising than the element of surprise, which right. is the last track. You got this kind of avant-garde kind of feeling, like moments that that come and go, but still kind of feel natural to what they're the weird kind of creep they're creating. Even just in the beginning of the verse, like you have that that low low piano note that mm-hmm. actually ushers it in. And then we begin, and in you get all these these random things. The strings step in, little tremolos here and there, little flourishes that last for only like a, a second less. They're just accent marks, but they're so colorful. And I have a feeling this is the handiwork of Owen Pellet. Just, oh, just, just, uh, just curious. Well, just envi- environmentally for the track, for sure. I mean, considering what we got on on the album we did of his two years ago now. God, it's so long ago. Um, Episode one nineteen. This definitely has that kind of muddied, kind of very steeping effect that he's had on a lot of his tracks. And then we get my, f- I, I dare say it is my favorite aspect, and that the, we're getting completely different vocals, yet identifiably the same character. We're getting something that I swear to God I thought was the Ramones. At least for an instant in the very beginning. The vocals are just so different and fit so well within this random drug den texture that we, we we get by the end of this track. It's such a dark and gritty film that's on everything because nothing comes through clearly. Nothing really except for the rhythm, except for the percussion that's going on right here. Feels like it's still always there, but even at times that falls apart here and there and, and other elements come in, but it's the same elements done in different ways. It's a, a smorgasbord of texture. It's a smorgasbord of texture. It's still a very well-structured track, but I will say the texture and maybe the the feel of certain little things have a tendency of making me feel like I'm in the desert and seeing mirages because there are certain little things here like like in the string specifically uh, that have kind of a Middle Eastern thing going on it's it's just something in the way they glide along they pierce through everything and they have this wonderful tremolo effect uh, this is specifically in the chorus and not unlike in the beginning of the album it's actually been a solid theme is these little like like string tremolos it's been present I think in and actually a lot of uh, Alex Turner's work. But th- that's not even the half of it, because there's the second half of this track, and that's a whole other thing. But just before I get to that, I want to talk an- a little bit more about these uh, these pieces of texture, because another thing I noticed, apart from, like, you know, violin tremolos, are these piano crashes. And this time I don't mean, like, the low note that started it off, and I don't even mean, like, a note played on the key period. I think I heard just, just strumming in the back of a piano, like a propped-up grand, strumming along the strings eerily and, and indiscriminately. It's it's always used, always used in Stanley Kubrick films, and I'll tell you that For if sure. that's any hint, you know, at what he's at what he's driving at. Well, it adds a kind of theatrical element, which also speaks to a lot of Owen's work. We talked about theatricality of a lot of the tracks on his album, but I think what's interesting is the song kind of started fun and cool with the bass, and like, and as soon as those avant-garde kind of touches come in, you get this other kind of looming feeling from them and they don't let up there's more of them as the song goes on to the point where eventually once we hit the interlude in this track it's pretty much completely avant-garde at that point not interlude at two minutes and one second Mm -hmm. the track kind of just restarts yeah it's weird like they hit a reset button but then we get this instrumentation that's just so odd but satisfying it's not even odd it's bleak it's It's kind of a rhythm change I love it it, it was almost a rhythm change. It's it's uh I I feel like they had to transition here because you'd have to be counting the previous section in like a very very quick like four eight you know double time of what you'd expect to be counting it at, uh just for you to have a transition measure of let's say three eight and that's right there at the very very end 
of uh, the chorus, I believe. Enter this new section. Two minutes, one second, just like John said. And at this point, it's a little hard to count, but I still believe it's an eight. But it's really made up of, like, two groups of three and one group of two. Yes, that still adds up to eight. But that's kind of the rhythm. I feel that's how you have to count this just to make sense of it. Because I, I feel like it would be very awkwardly counted if it were in, in eight or even if we were to subdivide that into four. It's very, it, it's, it's got that flow to it. And usually that's very important for the, instrument, the instrumentalist to actually keep time is to have a, a certain sense of, of the division sequence there. And it is very, very colorful. Obviously, there's lots of crazy things going on again, but it is a little bit thinner. Actually, it's a lot thinner at this point. And it makes those random little sound effects and all the little intricacies that I presume Owen Paulette, uh inserts here, it, it, it makes them pop so much more because now it's their time to shine. Whereas yeah. before, they were kind of disrupting everything. Now they're owning everything. Right. And it kind of... But the way they exist in that space adds to that kind of hollowness, the, the grittiness of this track, and just kind of perpetuating that environment. And then lyrically, it's actually an incredibly simple track. Bad Habits is the bulk of what's being said right here. The chorus is merely, do you want to hold hands? Should we get back down? She want to slow dance? That's it. Done. But the repetition of what's going on here, or rather the repetition of the way the phrases are designed, very short, four syllables at most, keep it nice and concise and just belt it out quick and get away from it. Have a nice little bit of breather with the with the texture that we're talking about. Go back into it. Let's go to this, those verses in like the separate little yeah. uh, uh, iterations. Bad habits, sick puppy, thigh high, knee deep. Later on, it's deep trouble, red lollipop, pale faces. Oh, right. Delicious. This is kind of the same stuff that I talked about, you know, a couple tracks ago in, in, in the title track, in fact. Yeah. The, the, the way where, the, like, it's abstract, but it's, it's a kind of leeway that I say, you know what, artist, go nuts. Yeah. Go nuts, because as long as it's tied to the music, which you guys know I'm sort of more linked to anyway, then it just accentuates that. I, I've always been, I guess, more forgiving of slightly abstract lyrics, as long as they serve a nice, punchy, rhythmic purpose. And then there is the very best line on the album, my favorite line on the album. There's a black infinity parked outside blocking somebody in. And the way it's phrased and the situation we're in right now, yeah, it's it's something you say over a speaker at like a mall or something yeah. of that sort. But just the idea, there's a black infinity. He works at a mall, so he should know. Yeah. <laughs> the black infinity. The back, Black Infinite, the big thing outside yeah. our universe that holds us in, it's parked outside. And the free, the way it's just said is it's something innocuous that is phrased and presented in such a way that it really is that that almost bell toll moment of this of this album. The bell toll, deep, dark scariness that this track is reaching for. I think that might be overstating it a little bit but uh, you know a lot of these lyrics they I feel like Alex Turner has a certain and oh, I don't want to be attributing all of this to Alex Turner we have another guy here who is literally 50% of the project so I don't want to undercut you know what his influence in these lyrics was I, I, I have no idea really it's kind of the very nature of a super group but um, it, it, I, I detect that there is a habit at least um, and this is a good habit not a bad habit but a good habit of uh of employing metaphors that that aren't grandiose. Exactly the opposite of, I think, what most people use metaphors for. Instead, usually, he, he drags it back down to Earth. Like, everything is actually more normal and more base 
uh, more more just just a pain in your side than actually you know employing uh, you know mythological references as we've seen in many other artists. In his case, it, it's more like what we saw a couple tracks ago. Well, everything you've come to expect. You know, that's not a metaphor, but he he comes up with metaphors based on that things right. that are at our plane and just dragging you down. Um, or the, otherwise, he's making fun of it entirely and just saying the the, the grandiose stuff satirically. It's it's an interesting approach, and I appreciate it. And I think the music usually matches it, not always. I think that this track also connects sort of well to the next track, but in an interesting way. So track seven, Sweet Dreams, Tennessee, which we didn't look up, but we assume is not a real place. <laughs> it's not a real place. If it is, please correct us and send us a picture if you're from there. Um, anyway, this track starts off very theatrically. It's got a, a very much a marching rhythm and a marching cadence to it. And it's stage vocal and so what's interesting about that is this also feels very kind of bigger than itself like the last track did at least initially and so i think it was an interesting follow-up to bad habits this is very much a love song um that's delivered in a very dramatic way 1950s style mid late 50s the sort of thing that would have been uh, for touring artists to sort of like preview before it ended up on an EP or an LP sure. or something like that. He's going around, he's playing this one song with all the other musicians. This it's, song has... It's, a, it's that thing that well, he, he gets known for. This song has this kind of projection of guy with a mic speaking to a large crowd, confessing his feelings. And I like that, initially at least, because it, it adds another element to the album that we're seeing in other places a theatricality a building of an environment a creating of a setting of something mundane right but the 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 biggest issue i have is that this goes on for a while you know and i mean steve has picked on me before because i always call out marching beats and i tend to really like them but the issue here is like the drums and strings are very much in sync and there is no variation with around the marching beat. Usually in songs I like, the marching beat is happening, but there's great instrumentation happening around it to support it so it's not just so bland. Something bulkier. Yeah. Other than uh da 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 I mean I can the Imperial that. March? I mean almost it sounds similar. It's close, but it sounds like a video game thing. But like, it's also, it sounds like a, the slow crawl of a villain coming in, in, in when you just again, take it by itself. An intro like that, fine, but two minutes of it, like it does get to wear on it's, you. It's, it's not so, two; it's four. It is, well, right. it is four, but this at the two-minute mark is when I got tired of it. Yeah, this was one of the, one of the few tracks that was over four, though, and it does feel gutted. I really, I had a hard time uh, with this track. I, I had a hard time. I think it's really good that it had the lyrics because otherwise, I, I, I. I was starting not to take it too much anymore. The lyrics, obviously the fact that there is a lot more content here, I think is indicative of the fact that he really just needed a backdrop so he can say all these things. Uh, I just sort of always feel sick without you, baby. I ain't got anything to lick without you, baby. Nothing seems to stick without you, baby. Ain't I fallen in love? It's just the pits without you, baby. <laughs> It's I, really just the pits without I, I hate you, baby. This. I'm sorry. I have to say... It's that, like everyone's a dick without you, baby. <laughs> and I fall in, I don't like this. Like the, I don't the, even like this. Because the, 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 well, the problem here with the lyrics is like, we're going down the biscuit territory. You're rhyming the same word with the same word. You know, how many times can you say baby? At least All it right. was less noticeable listening to it. But now reading the lyrics, comparing it to how repetitive the instrumentation is, I'm just liking this song more. Let's go into the only part with like real content. And all my pals will tell me I'm crazy. 
You bet I'm loopy, all right, and I just don't recognize this fool that you have made me. Whoa, I ain't seen him for a while, and as your shrinking figure blows a kiss, I catch and smash it on my lips. Darling, I can't seem to quit, completely fallen to bits. I really might be losing it. The idea that you've existed all along's ridiculous. I don't know what to say. I like the rest of the track, though, purely because it kind of lends to a joke that's going on or a way that we've been talking about them taking the mundane and turning it on its head. I don't know what to say. That's what he ends right there, and then he goes right into, Baby, we ought to fuck. <laughs> Seven years of bad luck out of the powder room mirror. Could I have made it any clearer? It's love like a tongue in a nostril. Love like an ache in the jaw. You're the first day of spring with a septum piercing. Little Miss Sweet Dreams, Tennessee. Hmm. Yeah, I just... I, I understand I'm, I'm, the content of this I'm more on board with the end of this track as far as the lyrics go and, and that alone. Well, yeah, I mean, I, and I hear what you're saying, John, and I, you know, yeah, there's, there's some meat in the content. Unfortunately, it gets lost in... The, the mundaneness of after everything. After the two-minute mark of a four-minute song that was two minutes well, too long. Well, it yeah. does kind of force me, though, to retreat a little bit on my previous assertion that, oh, I'm in love with his metaphors. Whatever he does, you know, whatever he does, it's usually so tied with the music. Here it's not. It's not here. No. So no, in this, no, no. But that means in this case, I, I actually, the, the response is that I almost start to get tired of things here and there. I think I kind of like the poetry, but it's almost like enough with the metaphors already. It's love like a like a tongue in a nostril. But, love like but, a but, ache point. in the jaw. Well, no. Similes, not metaphors. It's just flat out. That's what it's like. Blech. This song would have been perfect for any song that's telling of this love back in the 1950s. It would have exemplified what this idea is of I feel mixing like, though, Oh, it's more eternal than that. Yeah. I, okay, then it's even better at but I being feel that like thing. It's even... it's, plain for that thing like there's... no no it is plain i'm saying i'm not disagreeing with anything i'm saying the music and the message really are meshing together oh well, yeah sure i idealistically this is exactly what the two things should be doing together they're just not in both cases good enough to no, really not make necessarily a great good song. enough it's just not engaging the... enough Exactly. There you go. That's a great way of phrasing it. Because skill aside, I mean, obviously, there's still talented musicians. I just feel like the song falls flat and is not engaging enough. All right. Let's go to track eight, then. Used to be my girl. So here we're kind of going back to what we had in Bad Habits, a kind of grungier, dirty, kind of sleazy feel. The guitar here is like, we get some really guitar-y guitar. I know that kind of sounds dumb. Let me explain myself. It just, it feels very like... Jerry Cantrell style, you know, Alice in Chains guitar, very, not necessarily show offy, but, you know, a guy who knows guitar really well playing guitar. And the guitar hasn't really flourished that much like this. It has been present and in the forefront in other songs, but here it really kind of gets to run free and have a little fun. But it's done in a way that does feel like those kind of, you know, mid to late '90s grunge songs, where you know it just kind of has this kind of creep factor to it. I I was um, I was getting a little disappointed as of this track because now I'm like, ooh, did we peak? Did we peak <laughs> with track uh, four and 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 six? I I, I got to at least count in six for other reasons. For track four, 
uh, the the title track of this album it had it had a such a visceral effect on me and yet by the time we got to track six at least I could say all right well this isn't quite the same but it's it's employing all these different things and at least as long as they're experimenting just to make the track a little bit richer then I'm on board with it but then since then which kind of been like crawling and I'm wondering like come on I know it's around the corner you're gonna give me another track that's at least somewhere in the ballpark or somewhere completely different because you've done it before do it again and now here in track eight um I'm losing it a little it's it's still very samey and it's not really introducing anything new it it did admittedly become a little bit grittier than the mm-hmm. previous track. I, I absolutely enjoy this more than track seven, but I couldn't say much more for it than that, other than uh, the outro was pretty cool. But that's only because they went back to uh, triplets just to break up the phrases, to break it up into groups. It felt more kind of climactic, I guess, so I, I at least finished off in a more uh, profound place. Well, I want to talk about the grit for a moment because it was primarily accomplished through that guitar work, through a lot, a lot more identifiable electric guitar, like mm-hmm. electric guitar. Mm-hmm. Or this Pretty sort of much thing what I was really, saying, yeah. Yeah, but this broke up uh, something that I did not realize was the thing going on in this track, and that's the smoothness. Even in something like Bad Habits, it was smooth. The random nature of what was going on, everything flowed so well. This grunge idea being put into this track, it didn't feel as smooth. It no. felt like sandpaper compared to all the marble we got earlier. <laughs> I don't know. And this did really bring it away for me. That was the main problem I had with this track. It felt odd because it was gritty. It was grungy. It felt odd because it felt raw. I, w- I was almost poised to disagree, to say that it wasn't quite this, that the smoothness had left and that it maybe still was a little bit smooth but that because it didn't have uh an atmosphere that was drawing me in that that was the problem that smoothness means nothing if you're not you know if you don't like where you are but i don't know maybe in the course of you explaining that i i was starting to think about the rhythm in this track and it it, depending upon how you describe smoothness, which when you're talking about music, which doesn't actually have a real texture at all, then smoothness is kind of, you know, it's how you see it. And you know what? Maybe it's not that smooth. I, I think the only thing about this that was a little bit smooth was the uh, was the vocals. Because well, you had mentioned that there was like a lot of in, in, alliteration within the track. So I really, I really like the way he's singing in this track and then the lines, <laughs> I'm a phony, a fake, a fraud, a snake. The... the the, the the leading alliteration to the rhyme I really enjoyed I thought it was clever um, I like the wordplay I think here I don't dislike this as much possibly as the previous track again like you guys had said but I think that was mostly because I just dove into the familiar that I always know I like which is his vocals it's 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 more you know edging into the fact that he's obviously a really good lyric writer so you right. get these you get lots of creative usages of, of uh, alliteration mixed with rhyme. He did a similar thing earlier where I'm a liar, I'm a cheat, I'm a leech, I'm a thief. Little things that like kind of weave out of one similarity, one alliteration and into another kind of sort of rhyme. And he could probably keep that going on for words and words and words. But he uses it very, very well. I, I like these lyrics still. Uh, even after that, he continues, The outside looks no good and there ain't nothing underneath. Darling, can't you see? My heart melted in the heat. My heart melted in the heat like yours. First impressions of the century, two-way mirror, one-way street. Good cop, bad cop, routine. Black light animal print boogie left in a heap, a kiss on either cheek. I mean, I, I will agree with you guys that I feel like the, this and the previous track aren't as good as the peak we kind of hit. 
I don't think we're plummeting as fast as Steve is saying, but I do, we are taking steps downward from the heights that they had taken us to. And I, I feel like the next track is where I feel it really start to tank a little. All right, well, you can take that then. Track nine, She Does the Woods. This is the first time, so at least in every track up until this point, I could bury myself in the familiar of Alex Turner's beautiful vocals that were like a comfy blanket, like you had said earlier in the review. And so, like, I can wrap myself in that. If I'm losing interest in other stuff, I wrap myself in that, and that at least gets me through the track, and I find something to enjoy, so I don't dislike the track. Track 9 is the first track I absolutely dislike on this record, and it's because his lyrics and vocals for the first time feel very insincere. I get this kind of soullessness. I, soullessness is a harsh word, but I definitely feel an insincerity to what's being delivered here that I'm not connecting with. Well, it's because the vocals are kind of stuck in between that that echo from earlier that I I found myself surprisingly into and the very close up front singing he was doing on other tracks it's in between it's mild echoes mild reverb but it's not enough to propel it into the nice reaching one or to keep it nice and smooth and clean cut that in between spot is not doing it any justice and something also to say another reason why I dislike this track from the get go is instrumentally more or less, it was pared down but sounded almost identical to the previous track. That was my biggest problem. Yeah, like, That's why I, I didn't really see there to be a big uh, steep decline as, right. as you uh, previewed. I, I, I think it was because, at least in the last track, I did engage myself in the lyrics, so I found solace in that. Whereas here, both that instrumentation and the, the lack of interest in the lyrics really Rhythmically uh, and instrumentation-wise, I just felt imperceptibly different. Yeah. Like, it wasn't, it, it didn't develop anything. It could have been the same track. Really, yeah. if you didn't notice this on a playlist, I think everyone would have said, oh, is this the same track still playing? Yeah, no, it's the same one. I mean, it's, it's not, and I don't understand. Uh, it's just a bummer to kind of hit this point, especially considering we were so engaged beforehand, even if we didn't love every track. Here, this just feels like there's really not a lot to offer considering the similarities to the previous track. The strings are underutilized also. That's another yeah. thing. They just kind of squeal and occasionally go into little bits of legit comping, but they don't really do it for long. And what the, the track actually does, it, it, it does do a little bit of a build in the verse towards the end, but there's a weird thing going on with the chorus, pre-chorus, with post-chorus. I'm not really quite yeah, sure how to divide it. It's This build in the verse gets lined up when it transitions into the chorus. It kind of deadpans for a moment and then wails outward. Not a true wail, not a reaching wail, but it, it kind of it squeals. Yeah. It really just seems to just... That's kind of what I said before, though. The it, it, it had Hawks chooses a different direction to go in with this chorus but none of them feel like they're really meshing with each other. None of them feel like they're feeding off of one another. In earlier tracks, when there was a deadening or a, a loss of certain lines, like maybe three quarters of the percussion drops out, or maybe the the guitar is completely gone, and now we're just getting flourishes with the strings. Those were interesting ideas that were expanded upon. Here, it's just a, sort of a round idea. That's let's do this, then that, then the other thing, and then let's do this and that and the other thing again, and then this. It wasn't. It wasn't fulfilling anything, and that was what was really great about early tracks when ideas came out they were fulfilled they were fleshed out they were solidified 
in so many ways that they needed to be that by the end of the track I enjoyed it. I would here we're just not getting it. I would summarize what you're saying as like earlier tracks were more confident in their ideas. Yes. And yes. here there you here go. it feels like they're just experimenting. Yes, yeah. exactly. Um, Which is never not necessarily a bad thing. I just feel like the experimenting isn't leading to anything. Exactly. The, that funny, was, the funny thing is there, I there's no follow through. At least for the sake of experimentation, I, I might even uh, I might even take it a step further, Matt, and say that this wasn't like a, a, a steep decline at all, but rather that this was just a little tiny step up, actually, from the previous track. Because I had a hard time finding any redeeming uh, factors to track eight. But in this particular track, I, I, I will admit that section-wise, they did try to push it along. Like, just yeah. what I said at the outset, that it was imperceptibly different, that was like the opening the setup just felt I- almost identical to my ears as the beginning of track eight. Um, further in, the d- the drums kind of change a little bit. You have a, a verse going into a transition and finally to uh, the chorus. Uh, by the time you come down to uh, the verse two, and there's some comping over this as well, but by the time you get down to verse two, uh, the drums are now all in the low end. They, they've they've cut out whatever they were doing in the beginning, and now it seems to be this, this sort of rounded uh, low end stuff, which I kind of found neat. And then the strings come back and they try to do that THX sound again, which seems to be a through line. Um, also weird interludes here, which sounded like a Parisian street side. I, I'm just, I'm not sure where the core is again, and that's been my yeah. question for three tracks, and in that sense, I feel we've hit a little bit of a, of a stagnancy, if not like just a complete downhill slope. Yeah. And, and I don't, and it doesn't really dissipate in track 10 either. Pattern, it starts with this kind of guitar strut that to me felt very much like AM, which we've re- reviewed before, which was the Arctic Monkeys album we took on. It had a subtle danciness, like a lot of AM felt like it could be dancey, but wasn't necessarily a dance song, but it had dancey elements. Creepy dance music. Creepy, creepy dance music. Dance music for creeps. <laughs> dance music for creeps. <laughs> yeah. um, or The Creep by The Lonely Island. Never mind. Tangent. Anyway, my, my point here is that, you know, I don't know, the the, the string flourishes here feel ver- felt very patterned. Ha 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 ha, because the song's called Pattern. Um, but seriously, the strings here... Oh, that's here, it. Absolves. Right? We, we can just skip the song. Right, right. The, he, no, no. But he's see, doing what the artist intended. Right. No, but seriously, the strings here are, are kind of hooked in this pattern that, like, at least in previous tracks when there would be flourishes and we'd get these shiny moments, they were kind of a little different from each other or they would highlight certain things. Whereas here, when they came in, they, it was almost like clockwork, and that was a bummer. There was a little bit of a change up when the chorus first steps in, yeah. but that chorus stays around for a pretty long time. Yeah. It makes uh, two thirds of the track, it feels like. And it's not a very engaging chorus because the repetition of this culmination that it goes through kind of detracts from it as a whole. And I just can't get quite on board. Even though I'm. I, I hate the fact that these lyrics are with this course because it's another song that I really like the words I just can't get a behind the music supporting it. Yeah. This one's a tough one for me to dislike because I I feel both parties or or all parties present like trying in a way and right. I, I feel like there is a core it's there, and I feel like Owen Paulette is trying to turn this into something very grand as he's as he's wont to do, and usually is very successful at. But like you were saying about the whole pattern-based things, I mean, all right, yeah, maybe that's the point. I don't know. That's besides, <laughs> besides the point. I wasn't really. even trying to make that point. No, but but specifically in in those uh, those string, uh, I can't even say flourishes this time. Flourishes no, yeah. implies that it's something you know more spontaneous and and human. But here, it's it's just 
very rigid. I, yeah. it, to be honest, you could fool me here and say it's just synth. It's not string arrangements at all. It's just that that synth uh, effect that is starting to become a lot cheaper and ubiquitous within produced music. And like, what really also accentuates that kind of lack of human nature that you're talking about, Steve, is the rigidity, if you will, is when we get to the interlude, the interlude is more or less just a pared-down version of the rest of the song, and then it just takes us to sort of an evolution of the song. It, it, it When it builds back in, it does add a little, but it's more or less just kind of a louder, more cluttered version of what we had been hearing. Structurally, the song doesn't change. It just, we get uh, enough less and then a little more and then it ends and that's also kind of a bummer well before anyone jumps down my throat in terms of me trying to explain away all of these uh, little problems that we're experiencing uh from you know theme <laughs> uh and the overall point of the album which is entitled everything you've come to expect uh and i i previewed earlier i think is, is circling around inevitability and and, yeah. and pessimism a very bleak look at the things that at this point you know he feels are so cyclical that it's just oh well it's bound to turn out this way it's bound to turn out this way um this is what i've come to expect and here you have a track called pattern it just seems like a lot of things kind of are stagnating in a way and then the music is coming to reflect that and growing a little more stagnant uh whereas in the beginning it was so full so rich and so human it's possible that's not by accident and um, like I said, don't jump down my throat because I'm not necessarily just passing it off at, like right. that. Like that's not going to cut it for me if that's if that's it's the only reason. Excuse. Yes. But it makes me a little bit curious, maybe just to read some of the lyrics on this track. And I slip and I slide like a spider on an icicle, frozen in time. It's a trick of the light. I got a girl around the corner still, trying to change my mind. And never in my wildest dreams has it occurred to me to try to go to sleep. Wonder whether I'll grow curious when old Dr. Dust comes to call for me. Midnight like I'm her specialty. She'll outmuscle me, certainly, in the end. Midnight has got the hots for me, and I'm about to be born again. This is, uh... This is also under that umbrella. It's that's great yeah. imagery for it is great. falling it is. asleep. I like that a lot. It's it is and, it is great yeah. imagery, but it's also very pessimistic. Yeah. I mean, well, she'll outmuscle me certainly in but the end. Surprisingly, these... this is one of the few times we get a high note, and I'm about to be born again. That that end of that chorus, and it it does lend itself to impact the next track because John's going to give us some detail on the next track. Lyrically, yes. yes. Well, that's I'm what I'm saying. And so to. lyrically, the way we kind of wrap up pattern, when going to the dream the dream synopsis, it, it, it's... Well, first of all, it, it's a song about a dream. And so connecting a song singing about going to sleep and then a dream, like, there's a connection there, obviously, which may also sort of attach to Steve's point that we are sort of not giving leeway for, but that you brought up. Or, or that this is kind of a dream having to do with a brief moment of optimism within all all that because after all i should just read the, the following stanza after that uh, and i'm about to be born again because that made me curious love hearts heavy in her hands oh no not again new regrets rough start but we all know that dance do these old boots remember the steps almost like there was a, a love about to brew but is right. that within the confines of a dream i'm not sure well and because uh, again track 11 the dream synopsis isn't really about that or sort of is but and i'll let john get to that in a minute i just want to say that in the intro 
me and Steve almost at the exact same time realized this kind of epiphany that this song, the way it sounded instrumentally in the intro, was almost identical to number one party anthem. Now, right after the intro, they kind of depart a bit because, you know, they one goes left and the other goes right. But at least in those early moments with his voice and the instrumentation, it's just like, oh, we're getting a, a redux of that song. But then we, we, we move along and it changes a bit. But it's not just that. The context of these two songs is extremely similar because they're trying to belie the idea that they're kind of talking about. Because with the dream synopsis, it's not the dream. It's the dream synopsis. A little bit colder. A little bit He's less, talking about his dream. He's, he's not actually dreaming. Yes, yeah, a little bit less full of heart because it doesn't come off as a dream explanation. It comes off as winning an argument as to why he never tells a significant other about his dreams. <laughs> and I love this about this track. Some of the lines. And a wicked gale comes howling up through Sheffield city center. There was palm tree debris everywhere and a Roman coliseum. Isn't it boring when I talk about my dreams? I love the way he starts ending these frames. Yeah. I'm in a building and I notice that I'm surrounded by the ocean. I get a feeling. I start running. Don't really know why I'm running. I never really know why I'm running till I get caught. Wanna wake up for my dream report? Like he's using these kind of clinical terms yeah. to talk about this imagery that he's going on with here. Lyrically, it's very clever. I really am enjoying this joke that's going on right here, this little bit of comedy. But what's going on musically is, in a lot of ways, the piano finale. Yeah. And I, it is the proper finale, since actually I believe track 12 is the bonus track. So this, um, I think, is really the proper uh, finale, which does really limit it a little bit for me. Not only yeah. counting the fact that I sort of have heard this before, just like what Matt said uh, in, in um, number one party anthem, but I, I, I have a weird point about this. I mean, granted, all right, this has the strings going for it, uh, but the melody here, I think, is a little bit inferior even to number one party anthem because that song had a way of really just become like it got stuck in my head over over uh, well at least now a matter of of years. We did that I think in October uh, 2013, if you could believe it, um, that particular uh, album, episode 66. And I don't know. I, I you know, let me let me uh, bring this to the. To the listener's attention. Well, I'm I'm sorry, Alex Turner, if I'm if I'm misjudging the comparison, and I'm sorry, Jose. Of course, you're obliged to disagree. But after all, I know that 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 you know the album AM, and we're walking on a weird weird line here because we have a love hate relationship when it comes to comparing things. On one hand, we usually say comparisons, oh, they're they're poor form. We rate the work for the work and all that crap, blah blah blah. But on the other hand, it's also a good mental exercise to know what's out there, especially when it's an artist's own work just so we can recognize repetition when we see it within the confines, because that's always what we want to be aware of. Artists repeating themselves. Are we getting away with murder here? I don't know. It's not murder. I still like the overall feel of the track, just like I like the overall feel of number one party anthem, but it does seem like a, a kind of a hollowed-out version of it. Yeah. The melodies is just not quite as memorable, and then because it serves the purpose of the you know quintessential piano outro, it's not really doing much for me. Yeah, as far as the conclusion goes, I, I I have the same sense. And what's even more of a bummer is the, the track that comes after, which I, I guess is a bonus track, but I mean, everywhere I've looked, it's included, so we'll, we'll if include it. If it's there it. in iTunes, it's, it's part of the album. So <laughs> this is called The Born Identity, and I wish it was as action-packed as the movie was, because it's not. It's a strummy acoustic rock song. Like, we literally... 
easygoing kind of structurally some of the songs we complained about earlier and stripping them down more i don't even recall there being really any strings in this track and like it, it really just feels like a guy and a guitar which again i like alex turner and his talent and his vocals but i just i want more like if i want a, a guy with with a voice that engages me singing acoustically i'll go back to everlast because at least that like had pedigree because it was the greatest hit. I wouldn't do that. I know you wouldn't. <laughs> That's episode 65. That's I, crazy. It's adjacent to I'm, what we're talking I'm about. I'm just saying personally, like, I don't know, as far as a song to include, like, if it's a bonus track, then okay. It's a thing they made and they threw it on. But if it's part of the whole package, it's it's just a disappointment, really. And I still like the lyrics. There's another one of those tracks yeah, that yeah. was like, oh, it could have been, been more... Spilled the unspillable beans, and I've dreamed every single impossible dream. I just can't remember any of the details. Let's just have a buzz, because by the time I'm done fucking beating myself up, there'll be nothing left to love. I feel like the sequel you want to see, but you're kind of hoping they would never make. And I kind of, I really like that line. Yeah. I mean, that's, like, the the imagery on this album is really good where it's good. Like, it's solid and, and, and impactful where it's good. And it's just some of the instrumentation isn't supporting it in this latter half of the album. And it's another one of oddball pieces at the end that just that, that don't speak to me at the end of the day. And by the deafening silence that's coming from my uh, two friends right here, I guess I'll start with the wrap-up. Sure. <laughs> yeah, you might as well. Appreciate it. <laughs> this was This was a very interesting album on a couple of fronts for me. And... I just harped on it. The lyrics were, in a lot of ways, while kind of mundane in one ear, very provocative in another. They were simple in in ways that spoke to me very well with the imagery. But the instrumentation wasn't supporting it throughout, and that, I think, is going to be my biggest issue. The simplest stuff, like bad habits and everything you've come to expect, the really simple words that are being said there were supported by some of the coolest instrumentation on the album. No, not some of the coolest instrumentation on the album. The most provocative pieces. But my favorite lines came out of areas that just didn't live up to what was being said. How was being said, that was solid throughout. Mostly. There was one big hiccup where I couldn't I couldn't decide if they wanted to go reverby and ethereal or if they wanted to go down to earth and up against I don't know. That was a that was an oddball piece. But otherwise this 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 album was was kinda like three quarters there for me. Music was half there and the words were all there, but I just couldn't get behind it as a whole. And after it peaks it goes downhill fairly rapidly. That said, it's by no means average. It's definitely above that. Even counting the parts that were just just leaving me wanting. So, 3.5. Nice and steady. Definitely above the crowd, but definitely not approaching that 4 mark. Hmm. I guess I'll take second. Uh, it's always confusing. <laughs> Silence when, wins. When it's not one of us picking the album. For once, um, Matt's not you know touching the nose, calling not it. Yeah, there you go. that's true. This is, uh, well, all right. I don't want to constantly say this is a weird one. They're all weird ones. <laughs> Every, in their own yes, snowflake Yes, in their own special snowflake way. Yeah. Um, it's a strange one. <laughs> I'll Mr. cheat. Grinch. I'll cheat, of course. Uh, 
I I I liked pieces of this album so 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 much. Um and I really like I got it's got to be said I like Alex Turner as an artist. I like I think I like his choices because not every artist decides I'm going to have a this side project, that side project. We we've had our discussion before on on the type of artist who who actually does that and it's uh usually the kind that that feels a little bit uh penned in the kind of artist that would never be comfortable just doing one thing because otherwise their singular personality would become their only known personality and this is a guy who likes reaching back to the 60s to the 70s to specific artists in fact uh he's very influenced by david bowie very much so by uh by um i believe queen was referenced at some point it He's got a lot of influences, and sometimes he wants to pay direct homage to them. And I'm less critical in his case because I feel like he just does so, so well. And he inserts enough of his own personality at the same time. So whenever I hear him go back in time, I'm like, all right, give me more. Because he he knows how to do it right. Just just hiring Owen Pallet to do it, that... That's enough, because Owen Pallet is obviously a very talented composer. He can pretty much do anything he sets his mind to, and I feel is, is probably uh, best suited for this kind of project um, where he's tasked to sort of get into a certain environment. So as far as I'm concerned, that, that's, that's a non-entity on this album. My biggest problem is how it progresses. I, I've been pretty clear on that, and I think it just... Uh, I've, I've never witnessed such a profound peak, you know, in an album that is a peak not by you know not, not to its credit but rather to its fault in this case i love the track and i'm, I'm gonna I, mean, I love many tracks early on this album but unfortunately i'm gonna have to make a really clean cut after track six and that's almost halfway through which means that the last half i'm not finding much i really wish i was but i only enjoy it in as much as i like uh alex turner's vocals you know i only like it in as much as i think that the tracks are in a pleasant vein. Like, I like, like I'm starting to say, I like his 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 choices musically. Whatever he dips into usually is something that's up my alley. I like to see the other sides of Alex Turner and what he's capable of. And I was really, really enjoying this because it seemed to be really, really closely knit with that whole little 70s atmosphere. But at some point, it was lacking character. And, and that's really bizarre to me considering that at other points in this album, the early points, it was... It, 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 it had no flaws almost. Not no flaws, but really, really few comparatively. I felt like it was just a tight track written by a, a great musician, a great composer, uh, with even if they weren't, you know, even a, a trade-off, even if they weren't always the greatest melodies, then, you know, it was easily made up for by the instrumentation. If Even if the if the melodies were amazing, and then the, lyric, the instrumentation would just kind of coast. And it was an equal trade-off front to back that, that made for tracks that would just, that would probably stay with you. But then you have to sit through six tracks where the album just coasts along and eventually comes to a stop. And I think maybe that has to do with the theme, but uh, whether that's, even if that's verified, I don't know if that's really justification enough for me. I, I feel like the heights of this album are easily track four and track six for both very, very different reasons. And I really, really liked the build-up to track four. In the same way that I liked the build-up to some of the tracks on FFS. I was able to forgive the first two tracks on FFS uh, back in episode 181 because I thought, well, all right, they were kind of plain, but it all is part of the process of pumping you up. And then the tail end of that album, you know, spoke for itself. It, it stayed on that height. 
and I don't want to talk about albums so so clinically in terms of like, well, you know, when did it peak and when did it, it settle? It, it, there's more to music than that. I really do believe it. But I wasn't able to justify some of the, the choices he made later on. I, I don't understand why it wasn't apparent to the artists who released this album why there wasn't just something to accentuate the point, the theme, if I'm at all correct about what it was. And I don't feel that having the music just lockstep match the cycle, the the, the spiral that he's in, um, in terms of its blandness, was really the way to go here. I think there were probably better approaches, because everything you've come to expect, you'd think that would be the, the climax. But yet there, the music was at its peak. I just don't get it. I just don't get it. But overall, I still like everything. I, I like the feel of this album. It's easily somewhere in the threes, but it doesn't quite make it to the four. I, uh, I'm going to give it a eh, 3.75 because those two tracks are, in their own ways, masterpieces. That at least has to put it up to the upper threes. Um, I don't have a lot to add to the wrap-up here that hasn't really been said. I think that... I've definitely discovered that I'm a fan of Alex Turner, and I haven't really gone back and listened to the older Arctic Monkeys stuff, and so a lot of the comparisons I'm making are based on the one record that I know very intimately, because I listen to AM a lot. But I think now at this point, it's safe to say I need to go back and listen to older Arctic Monkeys stuff, because clearly I'm a fan of what one member of the band does, let alone the rest of it. So, you know, that's a nice revelation. I think that while I'm not as hard on this album as Stephen John might be. I am more aligned, at least in the overall feel with it. I think that, you know, the it's top-heavy, and the first half of the record is definitely stronger. There are moments towards the tail end that I like. As an album, I think I'd still enjoy it, but I'd be more likely to come back to the first half. Um, you know, the fact that Owen Pallet is on here is super exciting to me because I'm still obsessed with his record that we reviewed. I listen to it constantly. Um, the Riverbed is still one of my favorite tracks because of how intense it is. Um, and his string influences throughout this record um, stronger in some places than others. So that, that was super exciting to learn. Um, I just, I just don't, you know, I feel like I'm chasing the high of AM. You know, I rated Mini Mansions initially higher than AM, but I think I've since bumped it up in my year-end um, conclusion. Um, that said, this definitely doesn't hit the heights that either of those records did. I think just because of how kind of repeating on itself it gets towards the end. So for me, instead of spouting more because I think it's been said already, I'm just going to give my rating, which I think is similar to Steve's, but I have to hurt it just a little bit because, you know, I'm just not there. I'm losing something. So I'm at a 3.6. I think it could be a 3.75. It could be towards a 4. If if the second half reflected the first half more, I think this would easily be a 4. I think that kind of discrepancy kind of hurts it a lot. And again, Steve's right. The theme could maybe support that, but it's not strong enough on its own to bump it up in revelations we've had in the past. So for me... 3.6, that's 
that's where I'm leaving it. Like I said, my response is just confusion, complete yeah. confusion at how AM could be such a cohesive album with each one being so memorable. And I would really, really like to hear uh, uh, Jose, of course. I would love to hear. Thank you for the album. You gave yeah. me at no, least course, two tracks off of the. I will be probably replaying endlessly. I was uh, jamming along with that bass line that I, I uh, that I, I cited in the beginning of uh, everything you've come to expect. I was kind of just like almost blissfully just like rocking that back and forth on my piano just because I found it so uh, enrapturing and I, I couldn't even explain why to myself at that moment uh, why that was so yeah this this album has gems I just I don't understand why it wasn't a little bit more um, spread out equally yeah, <laughs> I be, don't get it I'll be curious to hear Jose's yeah. Comments Maybe I'm on missing something in the yeah. later tracks. We love it when the listeners point out stuff that we've missed, or you know, like with Twenty One Pilots and Ali and and Star F, uh, mentioning things that we sort of got wrong that he really found really intriguing. And so I, I I love that kind of stuff. So please, please, Jose, not AK Knockjaw, please comment on this episode once it's out, and I'd love to hear your take. Um, as with the rest of us. We're going to shift gears a little harshly here uh, and jump into a topic that's ever-present in my mind because it affects a band that I really enjoy, who's been around forever. So the lead singer of ACDC, Brian Johnson, is stepping down slash getting let go. It's hard to say. I've read a few different articles, and I don't want to misquote, but Brian Johnson, who's been the lead singer of ACDC since Bon Scott died, is no longer going to be with ACDC. Unfortunately, due to a hearing issue, he is going deaf and apparently playing large arena shows and these huge loud shows that they've been playing for years and years and years and made a career out of is you know um making the process worse it's 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 making him go deaf faster and so the doctor pretty much said you have to stop playing these shows otherwise you cannot you'll you will go deaf now he brian johnson's already said in the interview that he will continue to make music in the studio and he will still you know he's a musician at heart but i think his playing live days are over and so this inspired me to think even though we talk a ton about current events on the show once in a while but we try to avoid it just because you know I mean we did that and it wasn't really right for us but I wanted to bring this up specifically because it intrigues me to discuss the physical limitations of the musician you know there are plenty of musicians who have gone through these things as they've gotten older that's made it harder for them to perform there are dozens of different things or even not getting older just things that develop that are kind of out of left field that can affect their performance. And so I think it's an interesting thing to talk about just to kind of lament about how, no matter how much you love making music, there is something else that could probably take that away from you. It's it's physical. The act of making music is a very physical thing. You need to have lots of uh, lots of parts of your body in sync at at one given time. Obviously, your ears need to be perfectly tuned, and that that's uh, first and foremost. But yeah, then after that, it's all coordination using your arms, using your fingers, using various other things. It's it's. It's rough, but all of this is going to go downhill, and probably not all at once, usually just chipping away, one little step at a time. And the ears are obviously the one that, you know, uh, are obviously thrown around a lot, uh, because, well, that's often cited as being every musician's worst nightmare, is they go deaf. Because then they lose all their sense of even judging the music around them. They can't really play off of people they can't play off of the music that's being performed let's go to the obvious first before we uh uh, jump into a bunch of contemporary uh uh examples but the obvious that was you pretty much know from the earliest time you ever learn about composers is beethoven right that beethoven was 
went deaf, right? And he was a composer, but he was also, and some people don't know this, a really great pianist. Right. He was amazing for his time, and he was working with like the earliest of pianos that finally had uh, exited the the harpsichord stage and had become pianos, pianofortes as they called, and you could actually make them louder or softer. That's what pianoforte means. Well, actually means soft, loud. Piano, soft, forte, loud. And that's when you could employ expression for the first time. You could listen to the ambiance of the room, uh, the, the, the particular qualities of the acoustics in the room, and judge just how softly you want to begin the piece, and then just how loudly you want to make it, and Beethoven was known for being extremely aggressive and breaking many pianos over the course of his life. Of course, pianos back then were made a little bit less rigidly than they eventually started making them, but that begs the question, maybe they started making them a lot more rigidly because of Beethoven. Um, obviously, that's kind of a liability if your piano, your instrument keeps breaking in the middle of a concert. But the thing is, he he started going deaf in like the middle part of his career, but he was still a composer, and luckily, luckily for him, he learned so much about composing that he was actually able to take on a cerebral um, approach to the composition even by the time he had gone almost completely deaf. Well, some but of his most famous pieces have been written after he'd gone deaf. It, uh, specifically, I mean, his last symphony, Beethoven's Symphony Number no. 9, is was written after he was almost completely deaf, and supposedly, uh, infamously, he was actually conducting that concert. He was hearing the music in his head, and he was conducting the, in, the entire premiere, uh, and when it was over, people had to rush over to him and turn him around because he couldn't hear the standing ovation. Ovation, yeah. That's insane. Yeah, that's crazy. But yet he was still, you know, <laughs> managing to inch a career out of this, which is pretty crazy because I, I started off by saying that, well, the ears are the end. Yeah. But if, well, if you're that good, it's not the end, which is why I'd like to obviously spin this uh, conversation around to a plus side. We say physical limitations, but man, if you need a better example of overcoming your physical limitations, that's probably the, uh, the, the, the shining beacon for most of us. Yeah. And I think that what's really interesting about Beethoven is that, you know, he is the, the kind of the first case you learn, but there, there have been tons of musicians, contemporary and otherwise, who've gone through limitations and kind of come back too. Uh, one of my favorite metal bands that's not Metallica, that I grew up with, was Megadeth, and Dave Mustaine, who was in Metallica, got kicked out and then formed Megadeth kind of as a F.U. to Metallica. He's their guitarist and, and singer for, for ages, and he got diagnosed with arthritis in his hand, and he was supposed to stop, and he did stop for a while because his doctor said, if you keep playing, you'll eventually, it'll just get worse and worse and you won't even be able to use your hand. Apparently, through physical therapy and some other stuff, he's been able to come back to playing and pretty much threw his middle finger up to his doctor and was like, I'm just going to keep playing. If it means that someday I can never play again, I don't want to stop now to preserve parts of my quality of life because music is my quality of life. They're, and they're, I thought that's really, you know, kind of really passionate in the biggest way. That's astounding. And there's actually the, uh, a, a classical example of the same thing. Um, uh, one of my favorite composers, specifically for piano, uh, Scriabin, uh, around the turn of the century in Russia. Apparently, he got into a, a little bit less of a, a, a noble cause here. He was actually having a little bit of a battle with a, a fellow uh, piano player, probably in his same class. So they were just kind of going at it, playing who can play faster, who can, you know, push the, the art a little bit further along. And he overworked his hand, probably trying to, like, stress it or over-tense it too much. And it caused, like, a really serious injury to the point where it was kind of frozen a little bit. And doctors said, you're never going to be able to use that hand again. It was his right hand. Or you're 
it's not going to be piano player quality at least right. and so he just started writing his music around favoring his left hand a lot more <laughs> and becoming like really intensely uh, focused on that and guess what even with after five years the right hand regained pretty much all usage and yeah. you can tell this within his music people write strange things about like oh how his right hand had lost almost all all uh, ability if you read the music he didn't <laughs> relatively speaking to piano players he didn't lose much well he can lose a finger or two or when you lose an arm normally you stop being a drummer for a band like Def Leppard but you think Rick Allen not only did it he took two years off back in uh, late 84 I believe it was actually New Year's 84 yeah lost his arm in a car accident which I think he was just fooling around with but anyway besides the point came back two years later produced an album that sold 20 million which dude not only that he still was playing the songs he was playing two-handed previously with one hand with one hand and especially designed drum kit where he was uh, able to hit the snare with the other foot like he was like "I, i i got one arm i can still keep a rhythm let's keep doing this yeah okay sure two years but he lost an arm as a drummer yeah. And still kept making music. Did four more albums after that. Yeah. Like, dude, that's that's not overcoming limitations. That's like going that's that's putting out the middle finger to God yeah. at that moment and going, No, no, I'm I'm actually a drummer. You know, it's it's funny. This is actually turning into a little bit of like a public service announcement about yeah. how you can just you can accomplish anything if you just set your mind to it. Well, um, and and often it is that way. Other times it's a little more uh, uh, dire. Obviously, when you know, not everyone can be Beethoven. Suddenly, sometimes when people start losing their hearing, they can't really adjust. There is certainly one disability that seems like most many many not most. I, I can't speak for everyone, obviously, but a lot of people will overcome blindness when it comes to music. Mm-hmm. Uh, usually because, well, you think, well, it's it's more focused on on your ears anyway right Right. no that's not it's not that easily explained away obviously that was actually a sense i i I left off when i was i was listing these things initially um the things you need and eyes are very important at least you're you're taught to you can visualize where the notes are especially on something like a piano you got 88 keys most of us are using our eyes to pinpoint where that key is so that when our you know left hand shoots down to that low key we hit it right on the spot you know in one go um you lose your eyes and then well (laughs) that becomes a lot more challenging but it's not impossible obviously you have cases of ray charles of stevie wonder all these People that have I would argue that Stevie careers, Wonder no is probably one of the best musicians ever, and he pretty much his whole life has had no sight. And then there becomes the well myth, if you see it that way, or perhaps there's some truth to it yeah. that they become more in tune with the music the because song. they've actually done away with what technically should be a non-entity is right. ter- in terms of sense. No, know, yeah, we just feel the music and we know where to go. Well, also it's this idea that. It's it's rumored, and I don't know this because I haven't experienced it myself. But this idea that if you lose a sense, the others become heightened. This idea, yeah, exactly. Of, like in comic books, you the know, the Daredevil they, effect. Well, the idea that in in the comic books, Daredevil becomes heightened and gets this kind of sonar sense because everything else steps up because he loses his vision, and also chemicals are involved. I'm not telling everyone <laughs> to go like pluck their eyes out. That's no, no, not no. the point of this. But this idea that it's actually been proven that when because your senses are so in tune that if you lose one, the others step up because your body knows it has to make up for what it's losing. 
thing. And uh, there's not a doubt in my mind that the reason Stephen Wonder's music is so good is because he's working with less senses. It's heightened everything else. He hears things that other people can't. And I think that a not blind Stevie Wonder would not probably not have made as good a music. I mean, of course, you know, the dude wants to be able to see, or if there was ever an opportunity for him to be able to see, you know, and he wanted to take it, I wouldn't judge him for it. But I think there's a strength in him from having that. I would advocate, and I can't say this for all instrumentalists, but I can at least speak to piano players out there. Um, you should perhaps try, at least just try for your own personal uh, flexibility, um, just closing your eyes every mm -hmm. once in a while. Try practicing certain things blindfolded. Uh, you, it, it may help your muscle memory. Sure. This isn't like proven science, but intuitively you could see how that would probably work. So it's something you should probably throw every once in a while into your... Uh, practice cycles not just piano but any uh, instrument in general absolutely I mean, yeah even things uh like drums which are as like intense on eyes considering how widely spaced a drum set can be set up especially if you're doing more than just a quote-unquote standard drum set yeah. yeah do it blindfolded every once in a while just to see if you could figure out where your arms are always going to be well, all the time in a case like that obviously the uh, drums have to be set up in the same position all the time so well, you need to know where drum they are set, it if it's your drum set and you have a system then absolutely but it's it's more of a science I guess for piano because well most pianos are always going to be most most pianos are always going to have the same with keys and you're always working with 88 so it's more doable uh, but sometimes limitations, physical limitations, can actually seem, well, at least in my opinion, I think it, it did affect one musician pretty heavily in his style of music. And Kenny G's an asthmatic, and he plays smooth jazz. And I would imagine that that probably had some influence on how he was playing his saxophone. He wouldn't be able to do, necessarily, depending on how bad his asthma is, the really heavy flow of, of some of those jazz solos that are done it, so yeah he created a completely different type of music to suit his needs in some ways and he's one of the top 20 25 selling artists in america so boom university of washington once denied him entrance into their musician program because he had asthma and he had an album called what again breathless yeah. <laughs> kind of puts that in different light i think that you know the interesting thing about this is, like, I feel like there are certain things that can absolutely keep you from continuing, and then there are other things that you can work through. I mean, this is sparked from me just being kind of a diehard ACDC fan, even though, like, their albums have pretty much sounded identical for a decade. It's still ACDC. I like ACDC, so more of the same is okay for me. It's a bummer. To, to, this is a band that defied... You know, they had three albums with another singer. I believe it was three albums. And then he died. And usually that's the death knell for a band. Like, you change your lead singer, nobody cares. You know, it's worked for a few bands, but for most, it's like, that's a problem. you got to change your name first. And, and then, then, you get and then Brian singer. Johnson comes in and pretty much redefines what ACDC is, but still living up to the legend of the singer that came before. Just to imagine someone else after him taking over is so hard for me, especially so much later in their career, it's just a bummer to me. You it's know? like it may happen once where the lead singer could be replaced, can it happen a second time? Now yeah. you're kind of pushing your luck you're, a little you're, bit. You're hitting that yeah. Van Halen level where people just start to lose interest. Should have probably flipped this uh, this whole conversation around and ended on the high note, but I, I, we should probably definitely include the cases where sometimes it is a little bit unavoidable. We're all we're all limited. We're all limited, obviously, by life period. Yeah. And you know, when it comes to, to deafness can happen, and a lot of us can't overcome it, especially like in the case of Beethoven, he was, you know, 
a very skilled composer. So a lot of it with him was coming to cerebralize the sheet music. Sure. So you have something visual, and then he can kind of hear it in his head. Not all of us have that luxury if you haven't, you know developed that keen of an understanding of sheet music over the course of your lifetime um and certainly when it comes to rock musicians that's what uh a lot of us are told well don't play your headphones too loud yeah. you know forgetting that rock musicians just you know people who enjoy rock music and like yeah. listening to uh music loud uh, i'm probably guilty of all of these things yeah. uh, both on headphones uh, playing piano or just playing music that I like or playing music in the car, I yeah, I tend to go a little bit too far with it. And I'm sure I'm going to have to worry about that, especially when you hear those random little ringing in your ears, which I'm not going to lie, I've heard a couple times over the course of this podcast. Uh, a little scary. This, this unintentionally became a kind of, you can do anything, but th- I think it's important to discuss what can hinder a thing that we love, both if you're an instrumentalist or even if you're not if you're just a fan of music going deaf like for me personally that's my worst nightmare going deaf is my absolute worst nightmare the way i live on music like i just not being able to hear it terrifies me and i've heard that ringing too and it's like if that ever happened like i just i can't and so like i think adding it and addressing it is important absolutely and i think another area where that that's definitely uh, frightening to people is arthritis because yeah. that's that's it very much affects your coordination and sometimes you can't always recover from that that's usually where a lot of musicians just start phoning it in at that point um it is there's a lot of musicians that will continue further you know into their careers even with arthritis it's supposed that scott joplin and you know probably the foremost ragtime composer uh was just starting to make not recordings but piano rolls um at the time that he started developing uh some shakiness in his fingers and he had kind of a young death but you know it's kind of sad to to feel that that someone who was right there on on the cusp of the recording era, you know, yeah. where their their recordings could just almost have been recorded for posterity for generations, and that's just at the point where he started, you know, experiencing some shakiness. So you you, you listen to those uh, piano rolls, and you can hear that it's kind of uneven. Not that piano rolls is a perfect science. Obviously, you lose you lose a lot of detail, you lose a lot of expression when it comes to piano rolls, but still, you know, you you should at least be hearing uh, the the evenness uh, of the of the performer and it was starting to to wane a little bit when it comes to scott joplin um the last thing the last thing that i would like to discuss is uh the ultimate this is kind of a depressing one this is a sad podcast today but mental illness that does not necessarily inhibit musical performance because we are aware of cases where you know you have a situation of a savant who can just immediately tap in to the music in question and a lot of times it is vastly superior that to just about anything that even some of their contemporary or otherwise able musicians can produce but then why isn't it as appreciated is it just merely because mentally ill a lot of times it's featured more as like a documentary or in a case of nova the spot of you know the over overcame his his uh his limitations but i would profess that there's a little more to it than simply that. I, I think it's a it's it's something that is probably worth being produced, worth being recorded, 
Anyone agree? Well, I mean, also... Or mental, is it just, you know, well, mental, mental, performance? It, it, mental illness can take a lot of shapes, too. I mean, it's a broad topic with a lot of different things that can come from it. I mean... True, and it doesn't... In every case, you don't always end up with, you know, the uh, the savant musician. Well, but there also are cases. about this idea of, like, mental illness, you know, look, theories aside, Kurt Cobain killed himself, or that's the story. And if he did stemming from some kind of mental illness like that how sad is that that this this guy who writes really great lyrics makes pretty good music and then took his own life because of of an illness it's sad because imagine what he could have still been making you know yeah and so it's it's in the same vein we're not necessarily it's a savant but clearly there was some kind of damage or issue or problem and it curtailed his career well one of the worst things about this is that Sometimes the illness itself will get the credit. Yeah. And I've actually heard that specifically. That's kind of what I was getting at. Reference to to Kurt Cobain. Did he write the music or did his depression write the music? Or did a lot of times substance abuse or other things that are also offshoots of severe mental illness? It's honestly, no. No. You can never attribute something like that. It cheapens art in my opinion. And that's one of the rudest things you could possibly do is just straight up say, the artist did not do it. The thing that afflicts them or the thing they've overcome or the thing that they're 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 fighting in spite of, of being whole is, that, is what makes the music. No, 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 no. When you're talking about a musician creating drum rolls with one arm, it's not, he's an incredible drummer because he has one arm. It's no. Musicians He's an incredible like drummer, period. Yeah. He just so happens just to, to have, have one arm. arm. No. Or he no, just you, so happens to be depressed. Now, you hit the just, nail on the head as far as what I was yeah. getting at when it comes to, you know, those uh, the musical savants is that a lot of times you watch the documentary, it becomes very clinical. It becomes a series of tests almost as to, like, well, where is the music within the, the man that is obscured by the it, by the illness that you're obviously witnessing? And it, it's it's so clinical that it comes to the point, I, I just, I would I would like to hear the recordings. You know, it, it it's clearly a passion you can see that's probably where the the pinnacle of 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 the performer's enjoyment is there's there's a name that actually escapes me right now it's it's a guy that's been around like since the, the since the 70s and he's been playing since he was really really young but phenomenal jazz performer and they did you know some of the tests in question were that like they they uh, say emotions like uh, play something angry, play something uh, sad, and then out comes this very visceral improvisation uh, from this person who a lot of people would probably write off as not perhaps knowing the full intricacies of said emotions based on his mental illness, and yet there it is. So you know that's something that I still want to hear recordings of, even forgetting about the clinical aspect of it. Yeah, I think that cheapening someone's ability by blaming an illness, like no one, not you, blaming or attributing, or attributing, you know, like this idea that oh, Stevie Wonder is a great musician because he's blind. No, he's a great musician who also happens to be blind. Ray Charles, a lot same, of the same, greats. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we're still ending on a positive note. We brought it back. Yeah, kind of. Yeah, we kind of got there. Um, Should have ended on Beethoven, though. I jumped the gun with that. <laughs> yeah, it's true. Um, before we get into our. Uh, our closing of the podcast um, I do want to say thank you again to Jose for our album wreck this week um, it's uh, so great to have listeners who enjoy what we do and who want to engage and uh, we highly encourage that if you're listening and you've not yet suggested something please do there are plenty of ways to reach us through Facebook Twitter email otherwise, the whole nine yards. otherwise we're just going to stick with, with these three people they, they've been wonderful so far they have been that's true <laughs> um, a lot of good ones yeah yeah, yeah. Um, 
And then, of course, I would like, before we get into our actual what we're doing next week, um, I imagine since we had a, you know, a listener mail at the top of the show, you must have a spam on deck as well. When do I not? Generally, I don't understand article in blogs. On the other hand, want to state that this write-up really obligated everyone to undertake the idea. Your own way with words continues to be pleasantly surprised myself. Appreciate it. Extremely good post. I believe that was a very long-winded of saying of, you convinced me. Yeah. You convinced me. Well, thanks, uh, Garage Doors, Palm Bay, Florida. Okay. I don't even know what to say Is after that one word anymore. or were there spaces? No, there's or? spaces. That's, okay. uh, yeah, that's, that's based. Okay. Hey, the last sentence was actually grammatically correct. Appreciate it. Extremely great post. Extremely great? Like, that seems like adding... Actually, no, you're right. It's not grammatically correct. It's a, it's a sentence fragment. But in being a sentence fragment, it becomes more human because that's how we speak. Yes. Because think about it. If it actually said, ex- appreciate it, this is, ex- this is an extremely great post, then it sounds, then it sounds cold it sounds and, and body. It's an extremely like. good post. I mean, the quantifiers are screwed up Can there. Please now. move on. If you please. want. <laughs> not quantifiers, qualifiers. Uh, no, we can't. Obviously. Um, so next week's kind of a big deal. Because our our first ever guests on the show ever, episode two, right? Episode two. The Wall Street players are coming back. It'll be their third appearance on the podcast, but they were the first guests we ever had. And they are coming next week, and they are bringing us Run the Jewels 2 by, yep, you guessed it, Run, Run the, the Jewels. jewels. Um, so they'll be bringing that hey, next wait. week. The band is not called Run the Jewels 2? No, the band is called Run the Jewels. I'm assuming there was an album called Run the Jewels. Yeah, I'm assuming the that. first okay. album. I would have liked it probably better if it if there wasn't. If there wasn't, went if they, straight to if two. they wrote a sequel before they wrote the original, yeah. Um, so they'll be joining us. Um, it's always a pleasure to have these guys on the show, and so we will chat with them, catch up on their life, and then of course take on this record. First time back in two and a half years. Yeah, for them, they were in episode two with. Uh, Thank You, Happy Birthday by Cage the Elephant, featuring is, the Wall Street players, where they had no part in that review whatsoever. No, and then they choice. actually yeah. began the tradition. Uh, that's that's their big uh, claim to fame here, is they began the tradition of the guest picks, yeah. where the guests pick the album, which um, kind of makes a lot of sense, you know, <laughs> yeah, seeing right. as they have to sit here, you know, they might as well be something they enjoy or at least interested in. Uh, with, and with that one began of our most provocative discussions for an episode, album, Well, too. yeah, it was, it was a little early for us to be completely on the ball there. Episode 29, Hide the Kitchen Knife by the Paper Chase featuring the Wall Street players. It's probably the still scariest album we've ever reviewed. It's pretty scary. It's yeah, pr- and cyclical there. too, yeah. which is even scarier. <laughs> so make Everybody sure it goes back on itself. Yeah, yeah. the beginning could be the end. So make sure you guys tune in next week for that, especially the newer listeners. I'd love for you guys to check out their stuff. We'll probably feature some of their songs as well, dispersed through the episode like we do. So um, until then, remember, music is life and, and life, life is, is good. good. If you enjoyed this and other album analyses, topics, and guests, please subscribe to the Crash Chords Podcast on iTunes, where you can also rate us and review us. For more media, also subscribe to Matt's one-on-one interview series, Crash Chords Autographs. To receive emails on all new content, subscribe at the top of our homepage. Also receive updates by liking us on Facebook, following us on Twitter at Crash Chords Web, our Tumblr, and our YouTube channel. And remember, keep the discussion going, because music is life, and life is good. If you have any questions or comments, feel free to share them in the comment board below each post. 
Otherwise, email us directly at admin at crashcords.com.